Hello and welcome to Philosophy. I'm Will Anderson. Uh, this is my irregular podcast, but it's back. Sometimes I do two in one week and then sometimes I just go months without putting it out because I have no business plan. Anyway, uh, it's possibly because of these long intros as well. I'm going to do a little plug up here at the top. Uh, I'm currently performing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. If you're hearing this on a Wednesday tonight, in the old days, uh, the biggest night um, of the tour used to be the night my parents came in. I would always be most nervous uh, when my parents were in the room. Uh but now that's changed. Uh, my most nervous night is tonight, uh, Wednesday, April the 5th, when uh, the premiership coach of the Western Bulldogs, Luke Beveridge, comes to my show. Uh, so you, you can be guaranteed, if you want to see the best show of the run, uh, if you're hearing this today, come tonight, would be my advice. And this weekend, I'm at the Sydney Opera House, two shows only, but it's going to be huge. Justin Hamilton doing support. Concert hall at the Sydney Opera House, that's called uh, Critically Will, and it's touring all around the country. Anyway, let's get to the podcast. So, uh, my guest, this is how we start. I ask my guests who they are. So, uh, my guest, who are you? I am Michelle Laurie. Uh, I have to describe myself a bit further, yes. You don't have to, but that's normally what people do and then sure. we take it from there. But well, you don't I'm also, have to. also a Bulldog supporter. And Limo reckons that Luke Beveridge is warm for my form. That's how Limo puts it because Bevo has said yeah, hello to me twice. You know what I reckon uh, about Luke Beveridge? What? I reckon he would be warm to your form. Really? Yeah. I've never really like chatted with him. Just two times I've, I've crossed paths with him and both times he went, Hi, Michelle. And came over and gave me a kiss on the cheek. Yeah, I reckon time. he'd be Very right. Exciting. I reckon he'd be right up your alley. Really? And I reckon that uh, you would be right up his alley. I reckon he'd be <sighs> right into you because he he loves various. One of his coaching philosophies is he brings in all these external influences, and yeah. he will take from the world of literature or like politics or these sort of things to inform the commentary of you know what the message to the boys. Uh, one of the most interesting things he did was he got uh, comedian Luke Heggie, who I'm a really big fan of, yeah. who I think is a brilliant comedian. He just saw him one night on like ABC2 or something and thought he's really funny and got him down to entertain the boys wow. at the club. Yeah. So I reckon he'd be right your way. And that's one of the things I love about him. And he's at my show tonight. So oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. So when you're nervous, you feel like you step up. Like you were just saying, if you want to see the best show come tonight. Yeah. In the old days. I'm a bit of a choker. Okay. So, so. in the old days, I reckon I was too. Yeah. Like get in your own head. Or take yeah. things into the show. I think one of the biggest skills that over the years of doing it so much that I think that, you know, has improved my performance is my ability to uh, cup, what do they call it? Cup mentalize? No, carpet mentalize. What, what Compartmentalize. Compartmentalize. Yes. Carpet mentalize. Did I get it. You know, when you, no, when yeah. you hypnotize carpet, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, carpet yeah, mentalize. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, well, I'm good at that, but not on, not, not on stage so much. Although I always say to people, that stand-up taught me that. Stand-up taught me to compartmentalise because, you know, you're having a shitty day but you've still got to go and do the job. So, um, yeah, I feel uh, – that's very Buddhist as well. I'm, I'm a keen Buddhist and so, you know, that being in the moment thing I think I learnt from stand-up. However, still at gigs a bit of a choker if I knew that Bevo was going to be there. Yeah. I can't imagine I'd go great. Well, I don't. I think I changed my mindset. You know, I really yeah. did. I changed my mindset, you know, a while ago which was – no, no, no. I want to be in these high-pressure situations. Yeah. Like, what I want from this is to go, I guess what, yeah, well, to use one of Bevo's philosophies. Last Please year do. at the Bulldogs, mm. one day he can come on the podcast oh and tell yes. that would be the best. Yes. But, um, so, one of the things he said to them last year was to have no lid on how good you think you can be. So, their kind of theme yes. with the season was, 
Let's find out how good you can be. Have no limit on your expectations of how good you can be. Yeah. And try as hard to be as good as you can. And then, yes, look, sometimes you're going to fail and sometimes it's not going to be good enough. And then sometimes you're going to have to regroup and go, well, how do I get better than this? Because at the moment I'm only this good. There was a point in my stand-up comedy career where I was like, that's what I want from it now. I want to find out now. I'm, I'm... what I don't want to do, this, this is not a podcast about me. That's all right, that's all right. <laughs> I don't get to see you very often, so if we have to do it on mics, that's fine. Um, what I uh, like to think is there was a certain point where my career was all about proving to people that I belonged here. Yes. Right? Yes. And so that's when you're most likely to choke yeah. because you don't honestly believe yeah. that you belong. So what you're trying to go out on stage is say to people, no, 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 please, I belong <laughs> to be here. And there's always a bit of that that goes to the audience you know you know when you sit in a comedy audience and sometimes you're like this person's doing really well but i still don't feel relaxed yes i think there's a point as a comedian where i go no i belong here now that i know that i belong here mm. let's see how good i can be at this yeah. and that will involve putting myself in high pressure situations and see how i adapt to those situations or throw myself into situations i do these entire improvised stand-up shows yeah. now and again the thing that I had to come to terms with that, that was some of this might be shit. Yes. Some of this might be hard. And if it's shit and I have to walk through that moment and, and take on the next moment anew, afresh, and not let this wreck the next 40 minutes. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I know what you mean about that kind of pathetic begging that you take on stage with you in the early days. And that's one of the things that sort of put me off stand-up and why I don't really do it anymore or I just sort of feel this feeling of, nah, fuck off. I don't, you know, like I, I think I was such a beggar right? Um, in my way. And although I was quite, sometimes quite aggressive on stage, I think too. Oh, you can be both. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. easily be both. And in but fact, I, I was now, much more aggressive when I was yeah, yes. begging for their attention because yeah, I felt right. like I needed to, I needed to be aggressive to command their attention. Whereas yes. now it's about going, no, no, no. Yeah. Like, I mean, I sometimes joke about it to audiences <laughs> in the festival. Like, if there's one joke or whatever that they don't like as much as another night, like, I'll often point out to them, they're like, oh, you think you're judging me? But I, I've literally done that joke to, like, 5,000 other people this week, and they all loved it. Oh, so, funny. guess what? Survey's in. You're the ones who got it wrong. So, everything's <laughs> awesome. fine. I'm here to judge you tonight, not the other way around. Yeah, cool. So, I think there's something in that that is also then better for the audience because essentially it's like the captain coming on at the start yeah. of the flight and reassuring you well, it's all about, this is going to be okay. It's all about uh, leadership skills, isn't it? Because you are, every night, you, you're there to lead this group of people and you need to get their trust so they'll follow you. Well, this is I, my friend Charlie, who I do my other podcast, yes, yes, Top yes. with. Yes. We were talking about uh, one day, because these are the sort of conversations we have, um, what our roles would be in a post-apocalyptic world. Oh, fabulous. Like, That's like my favourite world. I'm really into that. Like The Walking Dead is my favourite show. I, I'm desperately always trying to find books about, you know, what's it called? Uh, what's that fiction called? A post-apocalyptic. No, there's another great word oh, for really? it. I'll think of it. Go okay. on. Well, no, well, I'll ask you this first then. Yes. Um, have you ever imagined in that scenario, like how you would, like say, say in The Walking Dead, say okay. you've got some zombie apocalypse, because that's a good reference for people to, and I did just watch the finale last yeah, night, yeah, so it's too. in my yeah. head. Yeah. So in those sort of communities, yeah. what sort of characteristics to survive in that post-apocalyptic world would you bring to the table, do you think? I think that leadership and that Ability to bluff a group of people into believing, you know who I'd be? I'd be the guy with the tiger. Right. <laughs> I'm totally. 
totally the guy with the tiger. I'm totally talking like in medieval ye olde right. English and I've got a tiger and I'm convincing everyone that it's fine. I know what's happening here. Yeah, Just I feel relax. like your ability to dress up in a like a yes. striking fashion. Yes. You know, I imagine like... You know, people wouldn't be seeing you out of makeup a lot. No, they would not. No, no it would always be... I'd be sending them on missions to find hair dye. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't care how many of you don't make it back, but I'm not having roots. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that would be me. Which one would you be? Uh, I, I do think about this a little. And Charlie, well, this was the thing where, you know, when other people, like, don't see something in you that you see in yourself. Yes. So I said, I thought I might have some leadership qualities. Yeah. And he laughed at that concept. I said, like, I'm, you know, I'm the producer of my television show. And, like, you know, I said, every night I walk out and get a thousand strangers to agree on the same stuff, mostly for an hour. Yeah. I feel like I could be a charismatic leader. And, and he doubted that. He was, he was not into that idea. He didn't see, because I think that my leadership style, and I had to think about this a lot when I became EP of the tally show, Mm. was what, what do I bring to this? What is my leadership style going to be? Mm-hmm. And I do think that my leadership style is mostly encouragement. Like I am a person who believes in hiring and surrounding myself with really good people and then just doing whatever it is to them to make sure that they can produce the best yeah, work that they can. empowering them. Empowering people. Yeah. And that's really... So I guess in that post-apocalyptic world, yeah. I wouldn't have the perhaps the <clears throat> dramatic flair that you would have. <laughs> No tiger. No. Aww. I don't think I'd be getting dressed up that much. I okay. think I'd be more like a kind of just a, a real sort of like, no one would really know what my job was, mm-hmm. but I'd just be a bit of a cheerleader. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'd just go from sort of house to house, yeah. encouraging people, just going, yeah. good day, killed a few zombies today. Yeah, good job. killed a few, but I few? feel like it took me three stabs to get one. I'm oh, feeling really? really unselfconscious about that. Why? You like, shouldn't be judged. Yeah, I know. I mean, but the one good like, thing about this post-apocalyptic yeah. world is no judgments. Yeah, I guess. I'm, you're right. I'm judging myself. Yeah. Thanks, Will. That's all right. No worries. Anyway, I'm And off. off I go with my tiger. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could do that for sure. Yeah. What is the word? Like, oh, God, I love that fiction. I read about this um, group of people who, who had a car, but they, of course, cars don't work anymore. Uh-huh. So they were towing it with horses and they were just kind of gypsies in the new world, you know. And I love the idea of people reverting to these really basic instincts as good people and bad people and people who will take advantage of everyone but people who still keep their humanity and I just love that so much. Okay, on this question then. Yes. Say we were going to start a new humanity. Say say the only way that the earth is – if the story of human beings Mm -hmm. is that we survive, right? Let's just use that as a a basis. If you're hitting on me, I've waited for 20 years for this moment. (laughs) Okay. If, if the basis of human beings is that we survive, yes, right. Um, if the Earth gets so bad, yes, and we discover that there is somewhere else that we can go, but we can only send a hundred people, how do we choose those people in a way that we avoid? the same problems that we would have in the post-apocalypse, the same problem mm. we've had now? Or do you believe that by the time they got to, like, you know, Earth 2, mm. there'd already be, you know, a couple of rich people who were running half yes. the thing and, like, there'd already be two people in poverty and they'd, like, someone would be yeah. someone else's subservient worker and someone would have been sexually harassed on the way there. I and do like... believe that. However, what if we cast it, not unlike a sort of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here vibe, right. where we just... In- <laughs> 
<laughs> where we ensure that we have those things. And so that's how it works. Right. right? I'm, a, I'm an earthling. Get me out of yeah, here. Yeah. Right. We have some footy players who will definitely win because they're so good at conflict right. management, you know, and we have some hot birds. And Well, I mean, I guess it's the ultimate episode of Survivor. Yes. yes. <laughs> so let's just cast it properly. Yeah. We get Jeff Probst yeah. to host the Space Shuttle mission. All right. Yeah. Uh, enough of this silliness because there'll be more of this silliness as we continue to talk. But um, just for the sake of, you know, the conceit of the podcast, yes. uh, Michelle, do you have a, a philosophy or a, like, oh, yeah. I say philosophy, but it's like, really, is there anything by which you choose to live your life? You know, is there something that helps you through, you know, whether it be work, life, love, yes. whatever? Well, that's easy for me because it's Buddhism. Yes. So I don't have to delve deep to try and answer this really curly question. That's fine. I'm on top of that question. It's yep. a bloke. A homeless bloke from India two and a half thousand years ago who reckons some stuff. Yep. And I reckon it fits my life in an uncanny way. I can't believe it. Right. I can't believe it. Every problem I have. Marriage breakup, kids with gastro, broken down car, parents moving into a granny flat in my house. All of that I can find in Buddhism. Right. And yeah. what is it? Like, I mean, you, uh, what specifically in Buddhism or is it different things in different situations? It is, but I think... Do they just specifically have, have nailed those four? <laughs> the specific <laughs> yes. it's really uncanny. of the Buddhist is like... <laughs> when Buddha's dad moved into a granny flat in his backyard, I was like, fuck off. This is crazy, <laughs> Buddha. This is like my life. Yeah, this is just this like is my just... life. Yeah, we are twins. <laughs> No, you know what? It's the response, personal responsibility. That's what really, I think, that's what it boils down to for right. me. Is that is the, this is my life. This is my problem. All of it's my issue. Everything that's happening is, is just happening. And how I relate to it dictates my quality of life. Right. How I relate to everything that's happening about, around me dictates the quality of my life. I think that's something that yeah, some people feel inherently anyway right yes. you know like uh, people ask me a bit on this podcast you know if you were asked that question what would you say and you know it's the closest i have to it is like i chose this right whatever situation i'm in you said that to me years ago i remember saying to you one year when you were just so you just had, seemed to have a lot of responsibility all at once and a lot of work to do and i remember saying to you how are you going how are you coping with all of this and you said to me well i chose it I was like, yeah, no, I did think about that a lot afterwards. And yeah. and I think that's something that people feel like there's a sense of that within people. Yes. Or a, and I think that Buddhism often is one of the things that – I think it's why some people who probably have only read like a book of the Dalai Lama's quotes that they found at a bookshop <laughs> that they were going to give as a Christmas present but yeah. forgot to put in the stocking and left it next to the toilet and flipped through it and went, a lot of this makes sense. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's another old guy who gets it. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of those things where – you know, so I think that like there's probably a lot of people who, you know, if they actually don't have a belief at all, but they're asked to, you know, describe one, they might, yeah, describe what they feel as being closest to Buddhism. That's it. Right? When I started really reading and, and, and studying Buddhism, that's exactly my feeling. I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I reckon. So yeah. why did you start? Like, because like, for me, that's enough. You know, for me in my life, the idea that I... You know, I'm like, I've chosen this. This is what I get. This is kind of the way that I try to approach my life. Obviously, you know, the other one I, I say a lot is it's everybody's day at work. So, you know, and what I mean by <laughs> that, that is, that mean? well, what I mean by that is, 
everyone you interact with, that's their experience of you that day. Yes. Right? So you can think you're the nicest person in the entire world. Yeah. But if you're not nice to the person who was making you the coffee or if you're not nice to the taxi driver or if you're yeah. not nice to the person who was putting on your makeup at work, yeah. then... That's their day at work. Their day and yeah. their experience of you is that you're a terrible person. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, I kind of just try to remember at all times that, you know, you're part of somebody else's life as well. Yeah. And the way that you interact will affect their day, you know? If mm. you're shitty to them, when they go home and, like, you know, their husband or wife asks them, how was your day at work? They yeah. go, actually, it was kind of shitty because, like, of this, yeah. right? yeah. So at the very least, try not to fuck up anybody else's day. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and there's a sort of Buddhist side. The other side to that coin too is that when you have a negative interaction with somebody and you take it away and it normally sort of puts you in a negative mood and then you start acting out in that way yourself and so you start creating more negativity, more problems for yourself. and more. Right. You know, that's where road rage comes from and all those things. When you, you're so angry in the world and you think, why am I really angry? I'm angry because I got woken up too early. I didn't sleep well last night. I hit my toe on the way out the door, whatever. But now I've created... Now there's a man with a gun in my face because I just gave him the finger on the freeway, you know? Yeah, car horns should have two settings. Yeah. One's your regular horn and the other one just goes, I'm not really angry at you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm taking this out on you. Yeah, I'm in pain. <laughs> I'm just in pain in here. Yeah. All right, so but... Uh, Aside from having sympathies towards that direction and, you know, going, hey, yeah, that Dalai Lama quote's really fun. Yeah. What made you think, you know, I want to learn more about this? I, I was wanna... depressed. I was just really depressed. I, right. um, it was 2006, living in Brisbane, hating it, desperately trying to get back to Melbourne um, in, a, in a prison of my own making um, and lost a job that I really loved and that brought me back down to Melbourne every fortnight. And I wasn't like sacked or anything. It was just like New Year started and no phone call. And, right. You know? Not renewed. Yeah, pretty much. The worst kind of sacking. The show was. <laughs> just me. Yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> So I was really We're going to keep going. Yeah. Uh, you not so much. Not so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't go to the airport this yeah. Tuesday. It's good. It's fine. But the other thing is that sometimes even those things, because I've been now on the other side of that. Yeah. You know, we book guests for our shows. And sometimes over the years, it is no reflection of the quality of the person mm. because sometimes there are external factors. So, for example, um, I do a panel show that has three male regular guests, right? So we have two other slots on that table. Mm -hmm. And when we first started doing the show, um, where I didn't have like an input or control over that, we would most weeks have like a male guest and a female guest, which meant that we would have four male panelists and one female voice every, most weeks. Wow. Yeah. Right? Yep. It would be rare. Maybe once during a season, we might have two women, which meant it's still where it's, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? So when I took over, one of the things that I wanted to implement in the show was I wanted to have as many female guests as possible. And I thought, well, if that means we have to go work extra hard to find these people, mm -hmm. then that's our responsibility. And in the last two seasons, we have all but I think one week, you know, had exclusively female guests. Yeah. Now, it still doesn't even balance out the show, yeah. right? Yeah. What it means is 100% of our guests are female now. Yeah. What that means is some of those guys who used to be our guests and who, who were great. brilliant yeah. now aren't getting spots on the show. Yeah. It's a d debate we have all the time because we're like, well, does it sacrifice the quality of the show? We believe at the moment we're able to find women who are bringing the value at least or more so in some cases than the men were. So I don't think yeah. we are. But sometimes, you know, you ha you're making decisions that are not necessarily just about yeah. the person who is the victim or the consequence of yeah, the yeah. decision. And which you're making is decisions that every person who ever discusses quotas on boards and all of these issues is trying to make as well. Right. 
And we've wow. had no pressure to do that, by yeah. the way. But I work in a like most of my team on Gruen is like I would say seventy five percent of the team is women. You well, know, you've a lot always of- been you've always been a a man with a lot of female friends. You're 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 a man who is you know fun for girls to hang out with and fun for women to be with. I. I, I, I think about this sometimes mm. because I, I still remember real moments of like growing up of overt sexism, you know, blokey mm. teenage, you know, the way we talked about women, the things that, you know, mistakes you made over the years. And I still think there was remnants of that that was in my thinking, even though I didn't think it was in my thinking up until maybe when I was in, thir- when you're 30, like un, yeah, wow. un, um, just things that yeah. you go, oh. For example, one that comes up a bit on this podcast is my consuming of female media. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I because I love football and because I blah, 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 all those, you know, so many of those things are written by men, you know, yeah. you know presented by men. I suddenly realized I'm not really like reading a lot of women. You know, I'm not reading okay. a lot of... That's why the internet's been so brilliant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get on Twitter, like regardless of what the rest <laughs> of you think about Twitter, find yourself... Like every time there's one of those lists of like the most interesting women to follow on Twitter or the funniest women, and there's a bunch of those lists these yeah, days. Yeah, totally. I just go through. Yeah, my Twitter is so. Follow, follow, follow. My Twitter follow. is so finely curated yeah. by me. Yeah, absolutely. It's just full of really great, interesting stuff that I'm into. Right. But I swear, you were like, I think you were one of my very first woke male friends. <laughs> For sure. For sure. I mean, people talk about stand up being sexist. I never. You know, I guess it was, but never in a, an aggressive way. No. But but you guys, there was this kind of our generation of guys who you, you started thinking about it seriously long before I ever did and talking about it on stage and stuff when I was just kind of in that mindset of uh, just get on with life and just get on with it. Right. But I also think, and Hannah Gadsby said this, and I think it was a really good, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but I'll get the gist of it, which yeah. was that the great luxury that white straight men have when yes. they talk about these things is that you can step away from the battle. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I can be as woke as I want on stage. Yeah. And there were plenty of times where I wasn't. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad some of the, you know, yeah. just the way you talked about things, even if you were well-intentioned. Yes. Like, you know, a, a joke that was meant to be about sexism but ended up sexist regardless. <laughs> a, me- a joke that was meant to be about marriage equality but relied on a cheap, you know, kind of gay kind of, yeah. you know, uh, I guess cliche or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, relying too much on low-hanging fruit and attacking personalities. You think you're talking about, you know, vaccines, but you're really just making a dumb Paul Hansen joke. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, so all those things I think are – and there'll be things that I'm doing now that in five years I'll be like, oh. I can't believe you did that bit about <laughs> albinos. That was, that was offensive. No, I know, I know. <laughs> oh, God, it's unbearable, isn't it, when you think back to some of the things you used to say on stage and had the best of intentions and right. and thought you were being so woke about everything and then you're like, oh, God, no, you're just actually making a joke about Nicole Kidman's kids. Why right. would you do that? Oh, and plenty of those things. Yeah. Uh, but the thing I was going to say is – it shows how much I think in some ways the way you're raised in influences you in ways that you don't necessarily comprehend. Yeah. And for me, growing up a farmer's kid, mm. the thing that you are very aware of on farms is that men and women are partnerships in the business. Yeah. There is no way that a farmer just has like a housewife. Like you can't, you aren't just a housewife and not, yeah. not that just a housewife is the thing either. But do you know what I mean? No, like, I know what you mean, yeah. But in the way of people's perceptions, yeah. you know, you have to go and round up cows or sometimes milk or, you know, so I saw my mum doing all these things, the same things as my father was doing mm. and saw them work together and she did the books and he did some more of the, but it was clearly a joint partnership. And as a farmer's kid, 
you grow up watching your parents do their job. Mm. Like for a lot of kids, their parents go to work and then they're at this office and you maybe visit there once a year. But for me, every day I saw them just do their work. You were there. You couldn't help but see them do their work. So I think in the way that I interacted with power structures between men and women, I think it was formed a little bit from that. You know, that yeah, idea definitely. I mean, I was raised to, you know, not be a whinger and just crack on. Yeah. So I think, you know, back to Hannah's uh, quote about how white straight men can step away from the fight. I think I was never motivated to step into it because yeah. I always felt like, oh, that's an excuse. Just, you know, if I'm good, I'm good. If I'm just as good as the boys and better than most, then that's the statement. And I don't need to actually make a statement, you know. Um, but I think that's a really common thing of young women. I think that's right. why a lot of young women struggle to, to uh, engage with feminism because young, attractive women are powerful by their very nature. It's only right. when they get a bit older, they lose that power and they go, fuck, where did that go? People used to listen to me. Oh, that's feminism I need now. You know, Which, no one's listening to me and anymore. The, and the great irony of that is it's also that, that same period of time is where I think a lot of these like horrible <laughs> men's right activist guys come from yeah. because they all seem to be worried about being rejected by some hot girl when they're 15. Yes, right. So all their anger comes from that same yeah. period. Yeah, and it's like, what? <laughs> the fight is over, man. Feminism's over. Yeah, well, yeah. ring me back when you're 40. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the fight when you're 40 and no one gives a fuck what you think about anything. Then you yeah. might. It turns out no one did for a while, but you no. had this other superpower. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, so as a younger stand-up, I was just always kind of, no, I'm not going to talk about sexism or I'm not going to worry about that even though I'm always the only girl on the bill. I'm not going to let that trouble me. In fact, I probably thought it was a good thing. Yeah, well, in a way for you. But also in a way, it shouldn't be the job. And this is the thing that, again, like when you talk about being woke, I think that really – you've also got to look at how long it took you to look at something every day yeah. and realize that it wasn't right or fair. Yeah. So for example, I was on all those bills yeah. and I was one of the 10 guys and I don't think I spent much time going, nah. there should be 50% women on this nah. bill. And when we I saw was a just gig- worried about whether I was getting on and the And where I was on the bill and right. all that kind of stuff. And when we saw a bill that was all men, it never even penetrated my mind. I right. never even noticed that, you know. But I mean, the, this sort of taps into the other issue, which is like fear of... When you're when you when you're a young female in those days, young young female comedian in those days, and you're the only girl, it kind of made me, I think, really um, nervous about other women. It made me right. really competitive and shit scared of other female comics because it felt like there is only that one. Yeah, slot. that one job. Yeah. You don't want them coming over here taking your job. No, I do not. <laughs> I'm getting all those slots at the moment. I yeah. do not want anyone sticking their head up above. You know, um, that's why I'm t- I'm still terrified of Celia Pacuola. <laughs> I'm so scared of her, and and I tell her all the time, and I like. Because that's my way of dealing with it is I tell people now when right. I'm really jealous of them. I go, I am so jealous. And that kind of telling them makes it dissipate and helps me deal with it. But it's very real. I'm not joking when I say that Celia Pacuola scares the shit out of me because she is so brilliant and so loved and she's so good at everything. And I just go, oh, it's it, it's like I spoke to – I know you've, you've, you've spoken to Mark Maron um, and I spoke to him too one time and – he said to me, you know, we've got to stop looking at other people's success as our failure. Right. And it's really stuck with me too. It's like, I, yes, I'm doing that thing. I'm looking at someone else's success as a marker of my failure. Her, Cecilia's life has nothing to do with me. 
Oh, I mean, I think, well, there's two things in that. Yeah. And I think they're both really good areas, which is the first one is, firstly, get over getting mad at people for getting shit that you didn't even want to do. Yes, I know. Like, that's the most useless of all of them. Like, where you're like, oh, I had that fucker get that job. I was like, would you like that job? No. No. Well, then let him have the fucking job. Why do you care whether he got the job or not? So true. But then secondly, there's the next one. Which is okay. So, for example, when Ronnie Chang, who I love yes. and could not adore more, yes, uh, and could not be happier for all of his success, when he got the Daily Show, yes. I also auditioned for that exact same thing. And I think that would be—I've been over in America, I've been pursuing my career over there, and I think something in that area, mm-hmm. something in that world, would be something that my skills would be best suited for. So. Yes. I think it's totally okay in that situation to go, oh, I wish that were me. Okay. But I am could not be fucking happier that it's Ronnie. Yeah, you can be both. And I think both, both those You're things right. can exist at once. Yeah. And in fact, it would be irrational of me to go, I don't give a shit about it because that would mean I didn't care about it in the first place. And also I think, I don't know about you, but look, I wasn't always like this. I mean, I can get to that point now, but there was a time when I would just spend my entire life um, pointing out all the reasons why they were not right for that job. Right. Mainly pointing it out to myself, you know, but like, I cannot believe, I can't believe Ronnie Chang got that job. Right. Even though, you know, that's dumb and then he's great at it and he he's should brilliant. have that job. And it's great for Australian comedy and it's great for him. But and I couldn't, I couldn't get myself to that right. level of truth for a long time. Well, also I think in those moments, if you don't examine them. Yes. And you can over-examine them yeah. as well. Like, I mean, the first thing you really do is going, look, it was never between you and Ronnie Chang. <laughs> Firstly, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like in my head, yes. this is what it came down to. Yes. The choice, but of course it didn't. <laughs> no. it, like the, he, the, they're two very different directions. <laughs> yeah, they are. The fact that if at some stage we spent some time in Australia does not make those it's similar so choices. It's so funny how you, know. you can look at that as an older person too. Right. Directions. You can yeah. go, okay, clearly, clearly they wanted to go in yeah. a direction. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you're right. It's right. Not- <laughs> that wasn't me. No, it is not. It didn't come down to them flipping a coin no. over Ronnie or I. <laughs> But secondly, then you go, well, what is it? You've got to let it teach you the other lesson, which is, so for example, the lesson I get out of that is when I look at that show, I go, well, right now for a show like that, for the first time ever in history, by the way, uh, being an unknown white straight man is is probably a disadvantage. You're probably the last thing they're looking for because if they're going to look for an unknown, they're going to look for somebody in this climate, which is great. And brilliant, and mostly shows are still hosted by white men and all these sort of yes. things. But, but for me, just personally, so then you go, okay, well, if that's not going to be my strength, what else is? Where else can I come into this? Because if you keep you know, batting your ball up against the wall, then yeah. it's never going to – like you're wasting your energy. Yeah. Find somewhere else where my skills or what it is that I have to offer are unique or yeah. you know, is something that only I could do. So. I think you've, it's important to learn two lessons out of a moment like that as mm. well, you know. And if you do, then you're like, well, okay, I know more now. Mm. Like now that's positive. I'm yeah. not going to put in another tape for The Daily Show where I'm never going to get it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go off and write my own thing or do my own thing or bring it from my own perspective or whatever it is. Yeah. So you're up in Brisbane. Oh, you're yes. feeling depressed. Yes. Oh, it'll be like this. Sorry, we'll just, yes, yes. Particularly with us because, yes. you know, we, <laughs> we love a talk and we haven't had a decent one for ages. <laughs> no, so. A lot of ground to cover. Yeah. So, yes, that was, I was in Brisbane. I was hating it and I got very, very depressed. And, like, I've, I've suffered from depression a bit, but usually I can knock myself out of it through a process of, right. you know, like just all the classics, exercising, eating well, maybe a bit of counselling, whatever. This time I just couldn't shift it. Yeah. 
And uh, I was actually quite suicidally depressed this time okay. around. Yeah, because I... And when you say suicidally depressed, um, without betraying any confidences, I've been close enough to this world to, you know, have seen various levels of it. Um, thoughts or like thoughts that you really thought about putting into action? Yeah. Thoughts and plans. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And like thinking about how I would do that. And, yeah. and it was all... Why? It was all because it's so embarrassing now, but it's like all career stuff. It yeah. was all like this job that I had had and lost made me feel like I'd finally made it into a really cool gang. Yeah. And then to lose it just felt like, oh, you were never in the gang, you fucking idiot. As if you were ever in the gang. Right. And that was so painful. Uh-huh. And it, and for the first time in my life, I thought maybe I'm not going to ever get in the gang. Right. Maybe I'm never going to break through and, you know this life that I've imagined for myself that I've worked so hard towards and I have made it to a certain point, maybe I'm never going to make it any further. And it was very, very painful. Right. So I thought, oh, I'll just go to the Buddhist centre and see. I don't know why, really. Okay. There's a Buddhist centre in Brisbane, Langry Tampa Centre, it's called. And it was so great. And they had daytime classes and at 10.30 and it'd be me and all these old, usually old people. And our teacher was Eddie. And Eddie's a stunning... Um, Sort of tall, skinny Maori man who sniffles a lot, and um, <laughs> and he's just amazing. He's just the most incredibly wise man, and he would sit there for an hour and just blow our tiny minds. What, what do you mean? Like what sort of stuff? What what was he saying? Just, just it was Buddhism. It was for it was basic Buddhism, beginners right. Buddhism. But it would just be things like um, he'd say, you know, Lama Zopa says that. Uh, the Buddhist center is like an emergency ward for the soul. It's like people only come here when they're really in crisis. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm in crisis, Eddie. Right. I'm so in crisis. <laughs> and um, he would talk about like relationships. There's this great day where he was talking about um, dealing with people who, who make you or you behave negatively when you're around them. So yeah. it's not their fault, but for whatever no, reason, no. you act like an asshole when you're around this person. And... Um, I was like, yep, yep, I'm digging it, I'm digging it. And he was saying, you know, you can you can try and deal with it this way or you can just cut them loose. Right. I was like, what? You can what? Yeah. You know, you don't have to be friends with people just because you've been friends with people and if it's not working, you don't have to... Just that sort, sort of stuff. Just like, wow. Yeah. I just felt like my own planet for the first time. I was, I was so prone to influences my whole life to what I think I should be saying, what would be cool to do here, what would be cool to say here, trying to make people like me. And it was just this really intense revelation of I can just be whoever I am. Right. You know? Well, you should be because you can't control what people think of you anyway. No, and it was all that, you know, it was all that. As hard as you try, you can't control it and it's really hard to keep up an act and – it's incredibly difficult. So you mm. start going to these things. How many other people are in this kind of, you know, Buddhism for Omis? Uh, about 20. Yeah, okay. About 20. And sort of... We go every week. Yeah, right. And at various levels of engagement at that point? Or? Well, we were all the beginners, but yeah. they were mostly this beautiful gang of retirees who just like had all the time in, in the world and were really into it and they had so much life experience to bring to their questions and their kind of – so that was really fascinating to sit. And I never speak up in those situations. I get really nervous and inhibited, you know. It's like I don't want to be looked at 
And really? wh- why is that? Where does that come from? Now, yeah, I, I mean, know. I think that's pretty common, by the way, with comedians, I think. I like, I mean, you know, I mean, I'll happily talk to a thousand strangers from a stage, yes. but I, it's, I find it hard to talk to six strangers at a, you know, I don't like ringing the restaurant to book. Yes, <laughs> me neither. I'm like, why can't I text you people? You know, and when someone rings you on your phone, you're like, oh, you freak. What are you yeah, doing? What text are you me. Doing? You sicko. Yeah, I'm the same. Absolutely. So I would sit there just like. <laughs> Even last night, I went to see uh, Dara Brain, who's this Irish comedian, and yeah. uh, I was there by myself and uh, was at Hay. A hall, and I sat down next to some people who knew her, who I was, and they were really nice guys. And so, like for twenty minutes, they were like trying to engage me in conversation. And I was like, I mean, you're nice, and I don't want to be rude, but <laughs> what are you what doing? Are you doing? <laughs> I, I was really looking forward to just sitting here in silence for 20 minutes before the show. I thought I might check my phone oh and my now God. I'm like having to engage in a conversation. Oh, I hate it when I get in the lift at work and someone gets in with me and I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh. This is like my last minute of solitude. Right. What are you doing? You've ruined it. Yeah. So I just sit in Buddha class, just real quiet. I was the quiet girl in the right. class and these beautiful oldies would be, you know, back and forth with Eddie about uh, Buddhism. It was beautiful. And it really just immediately cracked me. I just went, yes, yes, I am in crisis, Eddie. Right. Yes, I understand what you're saying. I feel like I'm remembering Buddhism rather than learning it in a weird way. Okay, that's a cool thing. It was really cool. And um, so I just kept going there once or twice a week for a couple of years. And it, it just changed my life. Did you worry at any stage that, I mean, often people find, you know, uh, a way of, you know, uh, uh, you know, like an organized way uh, of living their life mm. at times of crisis, right? Yes. You know, you find people have a come to Jesus moment in prison or yeah. like at the bottom of alcohol addiction yeah. or sometimes when they're most susceptible to being, and you know, it's the same way that, you know, a lot of other organized religions can, you know, yeah. you some people would probably argue and argue quite nicely that isn't it great that this place was there for these people when they're in a time of crisis but there could also be an argument that when you're in a time of crisis you're susceptible to yeah. you know finding cults. something yeah cults <laughs> right yeah <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Is Buddhism a cult? You're saying I could have easily yeah. joined ISIS at yeah. the same moment I, in my what life? What I was saying is, yeah. Maybe. If ISIS had come to you with a solution. <laughs> Maybe. I can certainly understand how it happens. What we think is, Michelle, is well, your solution, your problem is death to the infidels. <laughs> yes. Finally. Someone's given me a path to follow. I'm so tired of trying to map out my own path. <laughs> the um, only way you can get revenge on that show <laughs> yeah. is a lone wolf scenario. <laughs> Yes, I know. The, I know the floor plan, guys. Uh, look, look. I think. I mean, no, I was never worried about yeah. that because it's very much about common sense. It's very pragmatic. It's very much about don't just take my word for it. This is this is up for debate. This is up for discussion. And and because I started reading and seeing the Dalai Lama a lot as well, mm. and so he is the first person to say, "Don't become a Buddhist." Don't be an idiot. You can just read the books. You don't have to become Buddhist. Right. And this is his perspective. He's forever trying to the stop. The Dalai Lama also has eight degrees. Didn't actually enroll in it. No, just no, went, no. Sat in the classes. <laughs> knows every, that's how he knows everything. I know. He's pretty that's great. That's his attitude. He's like, oh, don't don't pay for the Australian. Get a free copy yeah. of the airport. He is the first person to say, don't become Buddhist. Just do, just be whatever you are, but just read the books. You do you don't reckon have there's to... someone behind the Dalai Lama going, can we stop him saying, don't be Buddhist? It doesn't stop anyone. It doesn't stop anyone at all but it's very pragmatic you know he's negging everyone that's what his he technique is. is he read the game he's 
<laughs> he probably did. He's like, don't be a Buddhist. He probably did. Then they'll really want to be <laughs> a Buddhist. Like, wear a funny hat. It's a conversation yeah. starter. Yeah. <laughs> I think he did. I think he did. Oh, yeah. Well, he is a TRA. He's a Tibetan rights activist. So. <laughs> yeah, he is. Bless him. Uh, I have uh, met the Dalai Lama. Yes. Uh, very many years ago. Um, it was, oh, God, I think I was still at Triple J. So it's uh, got to be, you know, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, a long time ago. And I'm not religious in any way, as people who listen to this podcast know. Um, uh, they told me beforehand, uh, they said, when you meet His Holiness, then uh, you will feel, you know, there might be a chance that you will feel just immediately at peace. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's very interesting. It's an interesting <laughs> idea, right? You know, uh-huh. I, was, I was skeptical about it though. Yes. But I will say this, I did. He has that sense about him Aww. that when you meet him, there is a real sense of... Now, I've met other people who have that, like an aura of some kind, uh-huh. you know, something where you're just like... But I did sense that and I don't know what the explanation for things it's like It's funny because I can guarantee you he would not like people saying that. <laughs> no. It really shits him when people treat him like he's a wizard. Yeah, but he kind of is a bit like a wizard. <laughs> he is, but he really... Yeah. He's like, no... But his I'm... special power is never having to show his special power. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? I've read articles where people go, and lightning struck around him and all that... And he hates that. He's yeah. like, I was there one day when someone said to him, oh, you're going to Uluru. Um, gosh, I can't wait for you to just feel the magic of the place. And he just said, I'm not into magic, I'm into science. Right. Although so there, there was some story about him not wanting to get off the plane in Adelaide, wasn't there? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that a, a few true? permutations. No, of that. I don't think it's true. true. Someone told me the other day he wouldn't go to South Bank in Melbourne. I've heard the Dalai Lama wouldn't go there. I went, no, I think you mean Adelaide. Yeah, and really, I don't think that's, that's true. That's a better one, though. <laughs> I like that one better. Yeah, he will not get he on that wheel. He went to Melbourne, but not yep. to the wheel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No. It's, he goes, there's something, even though it's a circle, yeah. and as a Buddhist, I really normally dig that sort of thing. I know, not this one. <laughs> not this one. I've heard it breaks down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's anti my thought patterns. Yeah. Um, I like okay. that about him. Very uh, pragmatic. Funny was what I was going to say. So He's I, funny? I thought he was funny. Yes, he is funny. Um, this, is my, I, this is all from this one meeting. I'm extrapolating this whole thing. But yep. it was very cold in Sydney that day and I remember this really clearly and so I said to him I said you know I literally just said such a weird question in retrospect we had spoken a little bit because I was about to host a function that he was you know going to speak at so um we were just having a a little conversation and uh um but I said to him I said do you have like a a winter cloak and a like a summer cloak (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) yeah because it was cold right yeah and he said, and I won't be able to, like, I'll have to describe this for the people on the podcast, but he said, uh, no, when it's cold, I just do this. And he put his hood up over his head and kind of <laughs> snuggled it in. And then he said, when it's hot, I just do this. And he kind of threw it off almost back off his shoulders. Yes. <laughs> he has a real flamboyance with it sometimes. And yeah. I was like, that's a funny bit. Like, yeah. that was a real... He's got lots of funny bits. Yeah. See, I've done a lot of those gigs with him now yeah. and I know his rope. Yeah. And so oh, he's, got some rope? he's got some great rope. Yeah. And so I know, particularly if he's tired, I'll rope it up with him uh-huh. and I'll kind of <laughs> ask him. <laughs> throw him a, throw him a soft rope. I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know I know his favourite rope. I know when he's rapping. Yeah. I know uh, some rope that'll just get him going. And um, yeah, so we've got when, a little When bit you stick. say when he's rapping, I assume you mean when he's wrapping up. Rapping but, up, right, yeah, not I don't when mean. He's that. just about to. <laughs> All right. No. Michelle. Not when Give he's us spitting a rhymes. Yeah. No, no, he's not spitting rhymes. He's wrapping up. Yeah. But I'm on the board now of uh, the Dalai Lama in Australia. Oh, really? As of like two weeks ago. And that that's my Eurovision, man. Like, 
I'm so excited. I just went to see him in India in January. Okay, so oh, let's have a pause just for a second. Sure. Only just because I have to uh, use the bathroom and sure. then we'll, we'll come back. Buddhism for Breakups is, um, I suppose it's part memoir in a way because it's very much using examples from my own breakup, the breakup of my 20-year marriage, um, to, to discuss Buddhist concepts. It's lots of embarrassing anecdotes about my own life and about my own participation in a relationship, my mistakes, but I think it's really important to, to talk about those specific examples because whilst we all think we're really peculiar in our own way, we're actually probably doing the same things as each other, you know. There's a lot of commonality in breaking up is what I've discovered. Once you really start talking to other people, you realise we all tend to make the same mistakes. Buddhism can certainly give you back some breakup dignity, I promise you, because it is all about discipline. It's about emotional discipline. And I'm, I'm not sure the Buddha intended it to be so, but certainly there are some smug moments to be gained from applying Buddhism to tricky situations. When you know that you could have lost your mind in a situation and done something really embarrassing, but you didn't because you employed Buddhism, that's a good feeling. That's, that's a smug, good feeling. Okay, so we're back. We had a halftime break. Yeah, we did. Yeah, but, On your um, balcony, stunning. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I love a view. I like the view too. And in fact, this apartment is very beige. It's just a standard sort of, you know, yeah. you've probably stayed in a million of these like yes. over the years. Yeah. And, but the the thing is, I've stayed in this same place for the last, and the elevators here, one of them breaks all the time. And it's, <laughs> I'm on the 29th floor and no, no. often it'll take 15 minutes for the, you know, oh, no, yeah. the elevator, the uh-huh. other one, and it'll stop every floor. But the view on yeah. this balcony is worth the is price worth of it. admission. It's and very at night, calming, isn't it? At night, I stand out there and pretend I'm Batman. That's basically <laughs> what it feels like. So, no, it's very nice. Uh, okay, so you start to be more serious about Buddhism to kind of like really learn a lot about it. Mm. What what made you go from going, well, I'm going to, you, you know, find out how much I can learn about it just so that I can sort of, Use it Function. to solve my problems yeah. or, you know, to deal with the issue that I'm facing right now. Not kill myself. Yeah. Yes. So that's your first stop, right? Yes. Like, firstly, let's just not kill myself. Yeah. And also, let's move beyond me thinking that I should kill myself, yeah. right? Mm. Really practical thing. You go to that, you fix that. Mm-hmm. Much like therapy, right? I've had periods of time in my life where I've gone, I need to go and talk to somebody about this. Yeah. But then when I kind of resolve that thing that we were talking about, I go, okay, cool. That's done. I don't need to yeah. go every week and talk about other things. Yeah. That was the thing I needed to fix, <laughs> yeah. right? Let's <laughs> yeah, yeah. not delve any deeper and create problems where there aren't to any To be honest, yet. mate, I'm fine with all that other stuff. Yeah. If it pops up and it rears its ugly head, I'll come back. We'll have a chat about that too. But right yeah. now, let's not pick that scab. Well, I'm a bit the same with Buddhism as right. well. Like okay. you do, you know, you swing in and out. And certainly when my marriage was breaking down, I was like um, sort of quite deliberately avoiding Buddhism because I right. knew what it would tell me and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> didn't want to it would tell me you know you're dealing with attachment you're overly attached you're bringing fear into this and ego and all those things and you should let go but I didn't want to let go so I ignored Buddhism for a long time and then when I was ready went back into it and it was I, I was right that's what it told me to do that process of letting go though must be hard particularly when you've invested so much in something mm. like uh, you know I, you can 
talk as specifically or as generally as you like, obviously. But um, uh, how do you balance that thing of going, I've put so much into this, you know, I put so much of my love and my energy and my time and, you know, I chose this, this was my person, this was, you know, it was us, Mm -hmm. you know. I went from it being me to I went to it being us and it all being about us. Mm Mm-hmm. To go, I have to walk away. Like, that has to be no more. Like, that must be a huge thing regardless of what that us is, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I just had to be honest with myself about the fact that it was no more already. Mm. <laughs> it was no right. choice for me to make. There yeah. was no decision. There was no – it wasn't up to me. It was over. And yeah. because we had both changed because everyone is changing all the time. That's impermanence, you know? And – uh Sometimes it sucks impermanence, but sometimes yeah. when times are tough, it's great because you remember, you know what, everything's changing all the time. So, but I get why bad times will pass. What happens is in our society, we see this a lot, you know, the conservative versus the progressive approach, really, to put labels on it that are unnecessary, but mm-hmm. just for the sake of this conversation. Um, I get the idea of people not wanting things to change because change mm-hmm. can be terrifying. So, how do you then lean into change? Well, in my case, by accepting. It, it was happening. It's I have no choice, and and the fighting it is what's creating all of these problems. Right. The fighting the change is what's making me miserable, tired, angry, and it's affecting my quality of life. I'm living a shitty life at the moment because I'm fighting so hard. Um, and I think that's a, for me. It's when when I feel like I'm fighting all the time. That's when I have to sit down and go, okay, why? Why am I fighting life? It's because I wa- I'm refusing to accept something that just is. Right. And as soon as I can accept that, the fight's over and uh, everything can improve. So, yeah, that's what happened. So, is there a process that that acceptance takes? Like, a, you know, is there a, you know, is there a process of ruminating on things or meditation or like, you know, yeah. practical things you're doing during that process? Reading. Yeah. Reading a lot of buddhist books mm-hmm. that always works for me it works really well just like anything i can pick up the dalai lama's you know this the art of happiness at work and it can just remind me trigger just put me back in that place of oh yes that's right yes of course i remember now i'm um i'm atta- i feel like i'm fighting because i'm attached to something and attachment um is the source of all unhappiness as buddha said right and so if i can deal with that attachment the unhappiness will leave. And it's that simple and it does. And so... But isn't attachment also a good thing in like regard to, you know, when you find friends or family or, you know, things that you're passionate about, you want to be attached to those as well, right? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, attachment's kind of different to that. And another word they use is grasping. So, so it's like... Explain. Well, it's like, you know, you and I are friends, mm-hmm. but I don't feel attachment to you in that I'm not grasping at you all right. the time. Like I get to see you once a year maybe, you know... And I look forward to it and I'm happy when it happens. But I'm not in between. I'm not texting you and going, Will, Will, talk to me. we got to do stuff. We're friends. Right. Why don't we... You it's know. not an issue that we haven't spoken. No, <laughs> it's fine, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So, yes. and when you have kids and stuff and get older too, they're the only friendships, friendships you can maintain. Right. Like everyone has to be cool with the fact that you're uncontactable most of the time, you know. So, you and I have a great friendship. We're not attached. Yeah. You know? Works out well. It works out really well. <laughs> You'd be too busy to take my calls. Yeah. <laughs> You're too busy. We're in different time zones. Yeah. You know, it's really hard for Very us to... Very hard to schedule that. Yeah. Occasionally, <laughs> we send each other a message on direct message on Twitter and that's about as much as we can handle. Yeah, because we know that can just sit there. It's yeah. probably not waking somebody up. That's it. I don't want to wake you up. Yeah. I don't want to be waking up. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. But I had a friendship, you know, where we were graspy and actually right. kind of being hateful towards each other. And I was like, okay, yes, I understand, Eddie. This takes me back to Eddie, you know, right. saying, okay, this is when relationships and that attachment that we uh, think of in English, in the English language, attachment's a great thing. I yeah. feel attached to somebody. This is a different kind of attachment. This is grasping. I'm grabbing at them. I want more of them. I want everything. I want to climb inside them. It's like an attachment that sometimes my American managers send me in an email that I can't open because I don't have the program. (laughs) Yes. And I get really mad because I have to go, oh, do I have to convert this to a different program? Everyone's mad. Because I don't have this and now they think I'm a failure because I can't open a fucking PDF or whatever. Okay. So you're. That's the attachment. So when you get. Yeah, kind of. When you get agitated by that, you're attached to them thinking a certain way yeah. about you and so this situation now I'm, I'm afraid that's going to make them think differently of me and think I'm an idiot I'm attached to the idea that I am a functioning adult <laughs> and they're going to think I'm not how do you then engage though in like we live in a world because here's, here's what I find sometimes is difficult is when your personal beliefs uh, as as they might be about you know the nature of attachment or the way that people should react to each other um, often I think we uh, people have trouble when other people don't behave in the same way. Often uh. this is the way, right? I believe this, but my problem really is not that I don't like, yes. you know, you can believe that gay people shouldn't get married, for example. The problem becomes when you think that everybody should believe that. Yeah. Right? And so, but when you have a philosophy of how you live your life, that will probably bump up against people who are not living their life in that way. How do you then negotiate your day-to-day in a practical sense? In a practical sense, I'm very aware that that's their problem. Right. Not mine. My problem is myself. And if I am acting in a way that I feel okay about, then that's all I can do. Um, You know, I recently gave some money to this kid I met in India so that he could go to university. It's like $1,500 Australian Mm -hmm. for this kid to go and change his life and his whole family's life, you know. And he was saying to me, oh, I promise you and I'll send you the receipts and I'll send you my reports and I'll send you everything. And I said to him, mate, it doesn't even matter. Like once I've given you the money, I'm, I'm out. Like right. I've done my thing. What you do with the money is your thing. Yeah. I can't control that. Interesting. Yeah. So it's also really helpful in a breakup because that's when you really have to face the fact that I can't force this person to treat me the way I think they should or right. to act the way I think they should. And that's their... Problem. I can't fix them in inverted commas because I don't think they need to be fixed, and that's fair enough as well. That's reasonable. Right. You shouldn't have to live with someone trying to fix you every day. What if the other person? So this is interesting to me um, because I just think it's one of those things in relationships where, with all sorts of people, that I've always been a person who has um, believed in autonomy. I'll give it a work context just so it's an easier practical example. But for example, if I hire someone, we're doing a radio show. You do a radio show, right? You have a regular guest on. Uh My kind of attitude to that is we hire the person that I think can do the job and then we leave them to do their job, you Mm -hmm. know? Yes. Uh, I'm not going to micromanage that situation and I'm probably like that with my friends as well, which is my – I'd just like to give you autonomy to be whoever it is that you want to be. Yeah. And I appreciate that. What happens though (laughs) when somebody needs help? Like say, for example, you see someone. I'm just going to use an extreme example here just to make the point. Mm. Say we've been around people who have had drug addictions, Mm -hmm. clearly had drug addictions in the comedy community. And often I think, you know, somehow us being cool with everything Mm -hmm. 
Do you know what I mean? Oh, I like, see. Like, you know, yes. these people who are like, well, that's their thing, uh-huh. you know, and I'm not going to be a judgmental person or whatever about whatever they are and, you know, I'll live my life and if they want to live their life that way. Do we have a responsibility to step in at some stage and not mm. let people live their own lives because it's being detrimental to their own health or well-being or, you know, where, where does that fit in to yeah. that philosophy? I mean, just at the moment, my father is like four weeks ago, I thought he was about to die any second and said to my brother and sister, if you have something to say to Pop, get up there and say right. it. He was in um, intensive care, his kidneys, lungs, liver and heart failing. Right. They all seem important. Things. Okay, they're quite important. Yeah. Well, Pop pulls off another miracle comeback and he's right as we speak sitting at his kitchen table and he's thinking he wants to keep drinking. Right. Right. And his doctors have gone, you actually can't, it'll kill you. But Yeah, he goes, well, you said those four things that failed to kill me <laughs> and they didn't. So what do you know, you idiots? And so now I've got this conflict with my sister because right. she's very much like she wants to kind of control and forbid and yeah. you shouldn't be drinking it's right a, you, you almost died you shouldn't be drinking yeah. and there's got to be another part of you that goes well if all those things failed he's probably you know <laughs> like he's not going to live for another 20 years and if he wants to have a couple of drinks before okay maybe- so you're coming from my brother's perspective <laughs> that's my brother's attitude what if he stops drinking he's not right. going to wake up you know yeah. zach efron tomorrow yeah. so why if he stops he- drinking and you get him a, a, a green juice in yeah. the morning it's not going to fix everything no he's still going to be him and he's yeah. still got however long to live let him have a beer but my attitude is this like i'm very clearly here to help you yeah. you know but if you I, but I, you're an adult you're a grown human being you're autonomous i right. can't dictate your life to you so that that is my attitude and with with other people we have known friends of ours it's like i think i think you and i and people we know make it pretty clear that we uh, would help anyone right. who asked us for help in any way we could except if they ask for 50 bucks again because we've all been burnt by that before right. but well we don't think that's helping anyone no that's not helping anyone but i'm not the person gonna... i want to help is not some anon- anonymous drug dealer no. <laughs> yeah yeah, street, yeah. Right? yeah but i look i am a little bit I guess cold that way that I just kind of think I, I can't change anyone else's life. I can't save anybody. So then with that in mind, what's the aim of you you're kind of involving yourself and throwing yourself more into the world of like, you know, being on the board and doing these things with the Dalai Lama because surely that's got to have some sense of helping other people still involved yeah. in it though, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, altruism is a key tenant of particularly tibetan buddhism but it's definitely with that kind of proviso of you need to people need to want help you can't go out there and enforce help on people if they don't want it you know (laughs) yeah even help needs to have consent yes absolutely (laughs) no one wants non-consensual help no like get out of my fucking house i I didn't ask you for your help the good news is you've helped someone (laughs) the bad news is right it's non-consensually mate i mean china (laughs) china reckons it's helped tibet right before we got here, you had no roads. Now, look how much we've helped you. Yeah. You know, you didn't even have a McDonald's. Look how helpful we are. <laughs> so, you know, help has to be consensual. So, yeah. um, my perspective is same reason I write books about Buddhism. Like, I've, I've got Buddhism for breakups and I'm writing another one now. It's like, if you're looking for it, i got some for you. Yeah. But I'm not going to try and make you have it. I mean, I don't want you to run out of all the... Because, like, the Dalai Lama's done, a, you know, Buddhism for the workplace and a few of yep. those ones. Yep. If you knock off for breakups and a couple of other ones, <laughs> just leave a few so that if, you know, I have a okay. late-in-life conversion or yes. I need to sell some books, I yes. can be like, Buddhism for pot smokers. Yes! <laughs> Actually, that'd probably sell they really well. They would love well. that. They would love that. There's a quite a, in a Venn diagram, yeah. there is quite a crossover. Crossover. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> 
You should do that. That actually feels like a really good. It does feel like a good combining book. Combining two of my interests. Meanders a bit in the middle, but it's quite good. That's my book. next podcast. Yes. Yeah, Buddhism for stoners. I want to do a Buddhist podcast, but most Buddhists are so kind of humble they won't come and do it with me. I asked this beautiful little nun, Jumper. Yeah. No. Oh no! No no no! Won't do it. And I feel like I don't know enough to do it. When I write Buddhist books, I send them to monks and stuff to like read and make sure I'm not cocking it up. You know what would be interesting is like if you were going to do something like that is, and I don't know whether people's engagement with this would be enough or not, but I, I think it'd be great to have something that like, you know, like an intro to intro to Buddhism. Yes, you know? yes, yes. And so where people could almost like ask you yeah. questions that they would like answered and you could almost be their conduit between yes. those two worlds. So if that person doesn't want to come on the podcast and speak, but they would speak to you, they'd yeah. talk to you on the phone and say, someone wanted to know this and like, you know, yeah. here's what's your perspective on this. Then maybe you could be, well, I asked some people and here yes. were some thoughts that we're having. Because it's kind always of do it surprising. Their advice is surprising to me, particularly you get an old Tibetan monk, you know. Um, I call it running it past the robes. I'm just going to run this past the robes. And it's always <laughs> I like it. surprising. But so, like, it makes common sense. It makes sense. Like, I, I rescued this dog because this is me being altruistic when, like, non-consensual help. Yeah. This dog did not want to be rescued. And so, what he did was he used to bite <laughs> everyone and, like, dig out of our yard and bite neighbours in their own yards. And I spent thousands of dollars on fences. And this dog just kept getting crazier and crazier. And in the end, I went to this monk and I said, what am I going to do? And he goes, put it down. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're a Buddhist monk. You can't put animals down. He goes, listen, if I have mice in my house, I kill them. Right. Like common sense, mate. You you have to, you can't let this dog just bite everyone in your neighborhood. Because, yeah, because it's hurting more people than it's helping. And perhaps it can't be saved. It can't be saved. And he said to me... It's easy easy for a Buddhist to say because they're like, ah, it'll it'll come back. It'll It'll come back. It'll come back. That's what he said to me. He said, you're just allowing this dog to get more and more bad karma. Yeah. Put it down immediately Immediately. and save it from all that bad karma. So It's probably racked up enough. Yeah. So it's that kind of incredibly pragmatic, <laughs> unexpected advice that I love from these guys. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah, that is interesting to me. So then in just a general sense, in your day-to-day when you're living your life, yes. how much do you ruminate or think about it or is it just something that, you know, is, is it present in your thoughts daily or weekly or monthly or when there's kind of something that, you know, needs to be engaged with it? How does it work? It's present daily because I struggle with what are called disturbing emotions with anger, fear, jealousy. Uh, They are the ways to the dark side. They are and I struggle with them so bad that when I'm feeling them, I I think I take a minute for myself and I think, "Ah, okay, why, why are you reacting this way? Why are you upset? Why are you disturbed? Go back to the source and deal with the source. It's because you just saw Celia Pacuola got another fucking job, isn't it? Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. But uh, yeah, so it, I do think of it a couple of times a day. Go back, back, back to the source. Think about it. Apply the program. So has it changed the way you look at the rest of your life? Like, you know, like are the ambitions you had five years ago or 10 years ago starkly different to the ambitions you have for yourself now? Yeah, but I don't know if that's Buddhism or ageing. I don't know. I well, just, it could be both. I'm just obsessed with retirement at the moment. <laughs> it's all I think about. I mean, it feels like you're someone who's halfway through a marathon who's really <laughs> looking for the line. I, I really am. Oh, my 
my God, it's all I think about is how can I make enough money to retire? Right. Or just even like semi-retire. I'm not well, asking for the big one. I think semi-retire, right? Because yes. as a communicator, surely you don't... Because no. you don't get into this with dreams of you'll be able to retire young. <laughs> Like, it's not like the reason I want to do stand-up comedy yeah. in Melbourne is because <laughs> I have plans to retire before I'm 50. Like, no, but I just want to... That's been quite recent. And, like, I did always still have those big dreams of I want to have a big TV show of my own and all that stuff. But now that's just gone somehow. And I want semi-retirement. I want to just podcast and write. Solo pursuits are yeah. what it's all about for me now. And like even podcasting, I interview people and talk to people. And at the moment I'm doing true crime. So that's just like really niche interest for me. Right. And then I go home and I edit, which is, I find really fun. Editing in, bit of music, bit of something I found on the internet, old interview, bit of, you know, and I find just being alone and doing that really fun. So I just want to find a way where I can be alone yeah. more often. That's uh, my ambition now. Do you worry that when you are alone, are you comfortable in your own... Because uh, this is the thing I think a lot of stand-up comedians have, um, is that I'm very comfortable being by myself. Me too. And I quite... Like people think, oh, is it lonely on the road and stuff like that? And you're like, oh, God, like yeah. I'm, in, I'm in at peace. Like I've got a whole day where I don't have to talk to somebody. Oh, yeah. Like I can walk around the city. I can listen to a podcast. Have you ever spoken to Jamoan about the way he tours England? No. It's incredible. I'd have him on the podcast, actually. You must, because he's such a fascinating dude. Yeah, and it'd be good to get him on something where like, it's oh. not to be comedic, because he is actually a really fascinating guy. Right. When, I mean, like his comedy is great as well, but I mean, he was actually the first stand-up comedian I ever oh. saw live. But His comedy is brilliant, yeah. and then when you get a chance to talk to him about the rest of his life, you're like, wow. So he's got a tribe of kids now. Yeah. And But what he likes to do is a couple of times a year, he flies to England, he hires a car, but he's a tight ass, so he hires one not at the airport, but a few <laughs> kilometres away. <laughs> Typical dad. And he gets in this car and he drives alone around England and yeah, he stops right. at night time and does gigs. And during the day, he does stuff like looks at cathedrals. Right. Just stuff that interests him. If he sees something interesting, he stops. And he'll do that for weeks and months on end alone. Yeah. Well, yeah. I say to people, that's like what touring in America is like, you yeah, know. right. Like, I've done 20 cities or something over there now. So, like, wow. half of the country. Yeah. And often, like, I'm in the cities for five days. So, really, all I'm doing is, like, you might have a bit of press in the morning or whatever, but essentially, you're doing, like, a show at night. Yeah. And you have all day to... So, I'll just walk around cities. And it's like, I have had, like, mm. you know, probably a two-year holiday around America. Like, I know more about Chicago <laughs> than most people who live there, you know. Yeah. Like, Wonderful. And so, yeah, there is a real element of that that I that I like. So you have no problem with because I know there are other people, like and you hear this all the time. People who just don't like being by themselves or yeah. get bored very easily when they're by oh, themselves. Oh God, no! I love being alone with my dog. That yeah. that's like my dream scenario: is me and my dog Jacko, Big Jack, and me just wandering around the house and him just wandering behind me, and I chat with him all day, and it's a wonderful conversation and um, and writing. You know, like I'm just really getting into writing as I get older. It's such a, like putting a puzzle together every day. It's so fun. How do you write? What's your process? I try and write a thousand words a day only because I didn't know how to write books. And so I Googled it and I read that that's what Hemingway did. Okay. Of all people. And I, mean, I went, okay. Might as well. Yeah. Okay. So I, I got some advice. I'm just going to go in with Hemingway. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to write the same way as Ernest Hemingway did. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, yeah, he seemed to know what he's doing. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's the only thing I have. I just write a thousand words a day and sometimes they're shit words, yeah. but I do a thousand a day and 
and then, you know, high five myself when I create a callback and all those great things I loved about stand up, writing stand up, you know, but in, I, I always tried to be really kind of tightly edited in stand up. I tried to get my jokes per minute to a really high level because Dave Grant taught us that, right. you know, and, uh, so this is so freeing to feel like, oh, I don't have to do that. I can be a bit more long-winded. I can follow tangents. Yeah, you know? I mean, like writing and, and comedy writing or any sort of writing. But like, you know, you look at someone like David Sedaris and mm. yeah, when you look at his writing, you realize it's not like you were writing a column, you'd put a joke in every yes. paragraph sort of thing. But he you know, tells it much more like a, you know, a Billy Connolly story. But the thing that I remember from being, seeing Billy Connolly on his last tour was often the first minute and a half, two minutes of a bit, there really wouldn't be any jokes in it at all. Yeah. He'd just be entertainingly setting the scene so that when he kind of did get to the funny bit, all the things had been painted so richly yeah. that you gave a shit about the comedic thing and it paid off, of course, much yeah. harder because of that. Yeah. On stage, you know, two minutes can feel like 30 minutes. That's like it. if I you're standing the up courage, there without laughs. I never had the courage to do that, you know, to really really invest in the storytelling you know you'd see matt king in the old right. days would do a lot of that stuff as well and people used to say that 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 melbourne comedy was about you could stand there all night and tell a story like that's really <laughs> sad you know but th then i did i got to this point that was my challenge when i was doing stand-up last really seriously about eight years ago i do remember, though. remember that like because i i was uh, just when i started out because i was doing melbourne and sydney at the time and you go to sydney and they'll be like oh what are you gonna do tell a story <laughs> And I was like, yeah, probably. I probably will tell a story. <laughs> and it gets gave to the shit so like, bad. What are you going to do? I know. Isn't this just telling stories? <laughs> just telling them real fast. That's right. what they do in Sydney. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah. You um, know, you're still telling a story, right? Yeah. But the last time I was doing stand-up, I set myself this challenge of like really lots of jokes. Yeah. Like really packing a lot of laughs in and trying to pack as many jokes into a setup as possible. Right. And I really got into that, but yeah, I'm off that now. Now I'm jokes really in the setups can ruin the jokes in the punchlines. Like totally. I'm, a, I'm a very punchline heavy comic. Like uh -huh. you know, that's my attitude and my approach is like you know, here are all my ideas. Yes, <laughs> you'll like some of them. You choose the ones on the way. You know. Yeah. But I must admit that even in structure forms, instead of going, oh, if this joke's going to have six jokes in it. Like, you know, if this thing goes for two minutes and I want like six times it laughs or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that's the numbers, but just yes. to use an example. Rather than doing three in the setup and three in the punchline, yeah. do one in the setup and do five in the punchline or whatever it yeah, is. You know? yeah. like, load the funny in the bit where it's meant to be funny. Yeah. Because sometimes telling a joke on the way to something actually takes away a little from it the effect does. of the thing that comes after. But at the same time, I felt like I was missing opportunities and I felt like it was sort of indulgent to allow myself a minute without a joke. Right. Honestly. Like no, I was thinking, you know. When you're on stage, that's absolutely the yeah. case. Do you watch much comedy? Not anymore. No. So no. that's the thing that I always find is mm. when you go and watch it, yeah. you realize that a minute on stage is fucking yeah. nothing. But when you're up there, like to the audience who are sitting there, often if you've just said something really, really funny, that minute of setup can come as a great relief. Yeah. You know, they get an opportunity to regroup and get ready to yeah. laugh as hard as they did at the last bit. Yeah. But when you're on stage and you haven't got to laugh for a minute, you're like, oh, 
Uh, oh, that was it. I'm not funny anymore. Oh, uh, God. This I knew this day would come at some stage, oh, but it yeah. turns out I'm completely not funny anymore. Oh, Everyone's seen through it. That's terrifying <laughs> to me, that feeling. And now I do like some Buddhist talks, you know, yeah. and even then I can't stand to go without a laugh. Right. <laughs> Longer than a minute. Even with the Buddhism. Even with the Buddhism, I'm like, I'm, I'm throwing in gear. I'm doing a bit of g'day, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Like, I just need it to still be funny. Yeah. It's like a security blanket to feel like they're engaged and they're listening and they like me. Yeah. It's that pathetic begging again. Yeah, but but I think that's a thing that you feel very much as the producer of content rather than the consumer of it. Like, I mean, I think about, we were talking about podcast lengths off off air. And I said, I never listen to a podcast and think, the only thing I mostly think is this wasn't long enough. Yeah, I was enjoying that. I wish it was longer. Yeah. If it's too long, like if you're like, oh, it went an hour and a half, but my drive to work's only 45 minutes. Well, guess what? I'll just listen to the other bit on the way home. Yeah, that's my favourite thing to do, actually. Yeah, yeah give myself a cliffhanger in the car park, you yeah. know, to it's come like back to. It's like you've got to. an episode of like, oh, I can't wait to hear yes, how that ends. Yes, I do love that. Let people make their own choices. Yeah. I like, shouldn't be worried. This yes, is my Buddhist approach. Yes. It's like, I'll make it how long I want to make it, and I'm, then they can make their own choices about how they consume it. I'm just it. always self-conscious <laughs> about being boring. I'm always thinking, am I being really boring? Like, even today probably. with you, I'm like... I mean, probably I to know. some people at some stage. Yeah, like what I'll say to you when this is over was, is that was that all right? Was that boring? Will? Well, was I'm pretty okay? happy that you did this and I'm enjoying it very much. Good. And if people aren't, like you said, I that's guess. their world that's and that's their, their world. choice. Yeah. And you can't I'm control. enjoying it. Yeah. Right. So that's fine. Yeah, you're right. That's all you need to do. But this is why I don't perform live much anymore. Well, let's I just... talk about that because I, you know, um, I am interested in that because we started out together mm-hmm. and you started out with a generation of comedians who have gone on to become household names in various different ways. Mm-hmm. But it was also, there had been a great generation of stand-up comedians before us. Yeah. But we were the ones who came along at a time where the hard work that various people had done kind of coalesced into an idea where what we did became an industry. Up until that point, it was a hobby almost that some people had managed to kind of find a way out of into a career. But in yeah. a general sense, you were kind of still running away to join the circus. Oh, totally. And I think that our, a lot of our generation was inspired by those people who were rock and fucking roll, man. Right. Weren't they? I oh, mean, yeah. the people we were watching just as we started to get into comedy – Never ever looked like they were going to be a mainstream in the mainstream at never. all. They were they were Greg Fleet, Judith Lucy, Anthony Morgan. They well, were. I always say of Anthony Morgan that I reckon <laughs> that five of the best ten gigs I've ever seen in my life were Anthony Morgan, and I guarantee you nine of the ten worst gigs <laughs> I've ever seen. I know. Were like... <laughs> oh and my god! Some of them were more compelling than the best ones. Oh my god! Like I mean, you, these were people who were genuinely going out. I mean, I remember seeing him do a set at the Prince Pat one night where he talked about what it was like to go down on a woman <laughs> at a time when the only way someone would talk about that on stage would be to make a cheap yes. joke about it. And he instead did this forty-minute routine where he described in this oh. almost like poetic yep. fashion, like him being inside this woman, oh, and wow. it was like I don't even know if it was comedy, <laughs> but it was. Fuck, I've remembered it. For 18 fucking years or whatever it's been, that is, I, I can still remember where I was standing. And I was just in the audience going, whatever this is, this is fucking something, you know? Like, that's it. So, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted yeah. to be a rock star like yeah. those guys. I wanted to, you know, yeah, I, I never wanted to be uh, in a magazine or anything like that or yeah. in the paper. You know, I wanted to work in a dingy pub in Melbourne because I came from Queensland and this was rock and roll to me. This was like alternative lifestyle 
interest, just an interesting life. That's all I wanted. Well, I think it'd be interest, uh, very different for the kids today because I'm sure there's plenty of people and you see it in their I feel work like they've and whatever. Got business plans, these kids, you know? Well, I mean, even if they don't, even if they want to be run away to join the circus yeah. people, other people have business plans for them. Yeah. And other people go, well, this is the way you do it. You d- had a really good festival show this year, yeah. so next year you do this and then we'll yeah. try to get you involved in this and then the next progression is this. And, and really afraid of making mistakes. Yeah. Like when I think of Jude and Fleety, you know, in the olden days um, and Morgs, the things that they were doing and saying in public would absolutely scare off everybody in the industry now. They wouldn't touch them. Right. They'd be terrified. And I think that, that's not the fault of the young performers. No, yeah. They are now in a different environment yeah. where all these things are there. Yeah. For us, like no one was like, when are you going to get a radio job? No. Because I'm like, well, you're never going to get a radio job. They certainly don't give radio jobs to idiots like you. No. So. I remember when you got a radio job and we were like, what even is that? What are you? <laughs> God, you have to get up so early. So How early. awful. Yeah, it was yeah, pretty awful. yeah. <laughs> But at least it was with Triple J, so it was still right. kind of rock and roll and cool, yeah. you know. But um, then we went into this world where, as we grew up, yeah. you suddenly go from a world of like being on stage, doing stand-up comedy, saying whatever you like, being the first person. And this, again, was a time before Twitter and things like that made... There was a time where stand-up comedy could be very dangerous. Like if not 9-11 or Port Arthur or yeah. Michael Hutchins died. <laughs> yeah, you could be... I shouldn't a, be laughing about no, that, but it's an in-joke. It's an in-joke. Yeah, yeah. Michelle used to have a very, very good joke about Michael Hutchins and when he died on that day, I did send her a message you going, did. I'm so sorry that you won't be able to do that joke anymore. <laughs> you did send me a condolence message that day. It was very sweet of you because I was thinking about that. But, um, but, you know, it had that capacity to, you know, if it was an era of Trump or whatever yeah. before the internet, you know, you would go to local stand-up clubs and you would see people say things that you would never hear anyone say on television or radio or anywhere else. Whereas now with podcasts and Twitter yeah. and Facebook and all those sort of things, you know, stand-ups had to change as well because yeah. of that. You know, you can't I, just... Look, you know, I'm all for political correctness in a lot of ways um, because I think, you know, if, if the worst thing that happens to you is that you can't be mean to somebody... You should have to live with that, right. you know. But then the other day, you know, it was April Fool's Day and this I, I saw a little bit this actress, American actress, posted a photo of herself with a fake baby bump, said I'm pregnant. Okay. And then came out and went, no, I'm not. April Fool's, it was just a prop at work. And these, the internet turned on her and said how insensitive to people who were having fertility issues. No. I just I mean, Jesus Christ. Everything's sensitive to someone. So sensitive. I've really felt sorry for her, you know. I don't know who she is. I never heard of her. But suddenly I was like, get off this woman's back. I mean, the other thing is too, she's a woman and women get pregnant. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. something that she could like have a joke with or some ownership I with or so. whatever. Yeah. I um, mean, I understand sensitivities, by the way. Yeah. And I don't think that we should be um, adverse to sensitivities. But but I'm all for it. I remember when jokes about sexual assault were fine and I'm really glad they're not anymore. And yeah, absolutely. I get that. And I, I like the idea that we can have these debates. And I, yeah. and I think it's really important that we, we – I mean, I talk – you know, even the language we use. Yes. Like, I mean, here's a really just simple example, which is – um, a few years ago, Sam Simmons made a joke on the internet uh, which involved the word prostitute. And he got like a lot of blowback yes, yep. from people saying, well, that's actually like really offensive thing to say now. Sex worker is the preferred term, blah, blah, blah. And it was one of those moments where I was like, I actually agree because I know now too that that's the right word. But there would have been times in my life where I would have said prostitute, not thinking that prostitute was the bad word. Yeah, totally. Like I would have been like... I'm saying prostitute. I'm not saying like hooker or yeah. whore or some derogative term. I'm saying something that I thought was the... I think we've got to be a little careful sometimes of 
we want everyone to catch up. Yes. You can force some people to stay behind yes. by them going, hey, I found out yesterday yeah. that it's sex worker, so I'm going to crucify you today that you said prostitute. Yeah. Remember six months ago when you didn't know it was sex worker? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just remember. And because if the yeah. idea is that we want people to progress, if you want people to go be less racist or homophobic or whatever, then shutting down on every kind of minor infraction yeah i think sometimes is self-defeating in the overall cause of yeah you know i think there are plenty of people in my audience who don't agree with what i say but i think if i present some of the information i had a routine about australia day in the show changing the date about australia day and i intentionally left the number one and obviously the main reason we should do it which is the dispossession of our indigenous people and that we're celebrating the day that that happened and if we truly want a day for all australians then we can never have it on that day yeah but i left that to last yeah like i I worked into it with some comedic things on days off and why it's that day (laughs) and how long it's been that day because my actual aim in the routine is if i start with the indigenous thing you immediately turn off that third of the room who don't want to deal with that who want to go that wasn't me and you know that's too hard Mm-hmm. But if I ease you in by getting you on side with all these other things first, yeah. and then we get to that, I do feel like there's some room there for people to go, okay, all right, you've given me enough oh, here that I can... isn't that wonderful? Right. I mean, isn't that, you know, so many of us... I was talking to Tom Ballard about this the other day, you know, he was doing his two shows in this festival. Which, by the way, his new show is... Is it great? Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. fantastic. Right. So he's talking a lot about um, political correctness in comedy and rah, rah, rah. And uh, we were talking about that kind of... Um, thing of the bubble you know mm. like preaching to the converted and i said listen don't get me wrong bub i happily live in a bubble like i curate my socials to make sure i live in a bubble because i just don't i find it so stressful to be reading other people's opinions to be honest like right. to, to read racism and, and sexism and and like islam's not a race so how can i be racist i find that so stressful i just actually cut that out of my life you know i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing but the fact that you can maybe even make some people think about it differently maybe even just get them to approach it from a different perspective is really powerful and it's really hard to do yeah and to I, not let them realize and switch off before you get there but also the other thing is i think we our immediate thing in all situations is these days is to kind of go no you're wrong yes or you're an idiot yeah like the example i use in america is like i toured there straight off the election half of the places i toured voted republican um i talked to a lot of people you know people who had voted for trump and here's the thing that they were willing to do they were over, willing to overlook the racism and the sexism and the you know those things right wow. they were willing to overlook them and my best sense of it was that because they had one problem that was so dominant in their life, which was, you know, not having a job in their community, shutting down, yeah. that they literally just were willing to block out everything else. Yeah. Like their attitude was almost a bit like, I actually do care about racism and sexism, but guess what? Racism and sexism have been around forever. And yeah. this isn't going to set it back that far, at least in their heads. You know, yeah. they're not but. Me not having a job and my town shutting down, that's happening right now. Yeah. And so as soon as I'm dealt with that, maybe I can step back into the caring about racism and sexism yeah. thing. If you immediately just go, you're all racist and sexist, well, they're just going to be and they're never going to they're be, you're in your bubble and you're never going to understand my... Look, if I you understand- say to them and... Yeah. If you get in the front door by acknowledging what it is that they think is problematic, I think you have more chance of then getting to the 
to deal with the next Look, levels. Look, you do, of it. but but I'm at a place now where I feel like I'm just not in that place anymore. Like I just can't. I go, you know what? You, I actually don't have to respect everyone's opinion. No, I don't respect not. Pol Pot's opinion. I don't respect Stalin's opinion, and I don't respect that opinion. And, I mean, he was a vegetarian, so I'm on board. And he with really that. liked his dog, so yeah, I get all he of was that. An but <laughs> he was an artist. But I think at some point <laughs> I have to be allowed to say. Well, you know what? I'm sure you're a great person, but you yeah. voted like a fucking asshole. Yes. And because of that, we are in this situation now. And I, I'm, I'm sick of kind of this, this environment where I'm supposed to pretend that certain people aren't just morons or aren't just self-serving, you know, pop, sure. populists who, who I, I won't cop Pauline Hanson in her in her words. I just I refuse. To respect anyone who respects Pauline Hanson. Yeah, well, it's disingenuous. That's stupid. But I will say also, like, she's a con woman. Yes. And sometimes people get taken in by the con. Because they're stupid. Well, I mean, are they stupid or are they living in an environment where they're not... I mean, we live in an environment in Australia where the major sources of information that they probably have are run by a rich American, former Australian, who has a history of supporting a network in America. It's all coming out at the moment. You know, massive sexual harassment payouts, you know, bigoted views run entirely for profit, which is Fox News. They destroyed the British uh, tabloid newspaper industry by making, you know, tapping people's phones and running this thing. And they don't pay tax to what they should in Australia and they constantly blame, you know, someone coming here on a boat or whatever in the daily newspapers. If you're just some person going about your life and the only information you get is talk radio or reading the Herald Sun, are you stupid or are you just like badly informed about what's really going on? I just feel like I grew up in a very racist, sexist environment in regional Queensland where Aboriginal jokes were told everywhere in every context. That's what I grew up with. And I said, no. That's stupid, even as a child. Where did that come from? How I, did you... I don't really know. I know right. that my I had a best friend in year three or something, Sonia, who was an Aboriginal girl. I don't know if that's where it came from. I certainly had a feeling of I'm the only person in this house who actually knows an Aboriginal person. Right. But you all will sit at the table and talk about who they are and what they do and what they want and, you know? Yeah. And that didn't gel with my experience with Sonia and her family. Um. But I don't know why that is, but I that's why I have no respect for the argument that, oh, it's not their fault because this is the paper. This is what their newspaper says. You know what? Fuck that. You have a brain in your head. There's reality. There's obvious reality, common sense right in front of you. What about – so I'll give a, another example. Uh, Hayfield, the tiny little town, which was the biggest – where I went to primary school, it's a timber town in country Victoria, mm-hmm. and their timber mill is about to shut down. And uh-huh. so it means the entire – town will probably shut down right yeah. uh industries will be completely affected this town that's been there forever is probably going to shut down but at the same time the reason it's shutting down is that a timber mill in the way that they're doing it there is no longer sustainable environmentally and the company won't get involved and they've asked you know yeah. the government for money and blah 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 anyway long complicated issue that we don't need to get into for the sake of this but there are plenty of people in that town because the timber mill is shutting down who are like blaming the greenies and the Leadbetter possum <laughs> or the whatever it is, where it's actually a much more complicated issue than that. It's about, you know, we haven't sustainably planned for industries and they get shut down because of economics and there should have actually been a more sustainable industry in place by the time this one needed to shut down and yeah. all those sort of things that are actual problems. Um 
But they get told the reason your mill's shutting down is because of the lead better possum. Are they idiots because they believe that? Or is that the best information they're getting? And when you live in a community, because there are plenty of people who live in Hayfield who aren't idiots, you know what I mean? But they, they still believe this because that's the information they're being that's given. That's also the easiest thing to believe. That's also the, the quickest thing to believe. And, it's, and, it, and it feels good because there's someone to blame. There's someone very specific uh-huh. to blame who is politically opposed to you on lots of issues. And, and I understand that's coming from a place of fear and pain. It's horrible when that happens. But it ain't smart to deny all the realities that you've just mapped out there that are available to everyone more so than ever. Information is more available to us than ever before. There's no excuse not to be informed. What about the argument that... Uh we have so much information now that we're starting to reject expertise. So we all think oh, our yeah. experts because we have this contraption in our pocket that has access to all the information in the world. But what we don't all have is the ability to discern which of that information is good or bad information. I mean, yeah. we saw this in the American election. You know, there are people online, you know, more fake news was read, but also believe. People believe 50% of like uh, in a recent poll, 50% of like, people poll believe that Pizzagate, which was that conspiracy that Hillary Clinton was running a child pornography ring out of a pizza restaurant because in their emails they used uh, the words cheese pizza and the sluice online went CP, child <gasps> pornography. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it was a pizza restaurant. They were ordering cheese pizza, you yeah. fucking idiots. But, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the worst, like, really, seriously. <laughs> but, but, okay. but my point is that people, a lot of people read these things because they did not, they couldn't differentiate this news source from another news source. Well, they need to learn. They need to learn how to do that. And I think they need to take responsibility for, for doing that. I mean, Is that's... that n- not an easy thing for people like us to say whose job it is to do that and who are consumers oh. of media versus someone who's at work all day at their job and only, you know, listens to the radio on the way in the car or like gets to read the, you know, the Herald Sun in the work workroom at 10.15 or yeah. whatever. I think that is that is a, an issue that's been bubbling away Oh, in Australia for a very long time, the war on experts, the Howard government, you know, launched yeah. into the elites, they called them. And that's why now you can have 98% of scientists talking about climate change and people saying, nah, I don't believe it. Yeah. What do you mean? You're, you're a cab driver. Right. Why do you think you know more about it than all of those scientists? Yeah. I just don't understand that way of thinking. And by the way, in reverse. If we, if we want to ask somebody about cab-related, right. we'll come to you. I'll come to you. Yeah, if, I, if I need someone to drive me <laughs> from my place in the city to an interview yeah. on my journey in South Yarra, I'm not going to call a scientist. No. But you're right. <laughs> I guess it is. I guess hey, Dr. It is. Carl. Yeah, right. Could you come and pick me up, mate? No, no. I'm not going to ask him to. No. You're right. Maybe it is this computer in our pockets that makes everyone think they're experts and that they're, what they have to say is as valid and is important and should be listened to as much as anyone else's. And it shouldn't. Because there are actual things as experts, people who've dedicated their lives to understanding this stuff. So how have we got to this point and how do we address it is, I think, two of the big questions that we're facing. (laughs) Because one of them is I think that it's ingrained in capitalism. This is one of my pet theories on it, is that capitalism forces us to make, have opinions on everything. Like, you know, the age of stay on after the line, tell us what the service was, rate this car ride, you know, give us your comments. Everyone deserves to be respected. You've got to respect everyone's opinions, people say to you all the time. You actually don't. No, you don't. Everyone's allowed to have their opinions. Sure. But, you know, there's that famous famous quote of, like, my expertise is not the same as your ignorance, right? They don't have the same weight, right? You're allowed to express your opinion, but eventually we leave it to the experts. You know, I've talked about it before on this podcast, but, you know, when the pilot comes on at the start of the plane, 
you know, and says we're going up 30,000 and we're going to take it out to the east. <laughs> He's not asking for other suggestions. <laughs> He's saying right this is how we're on. doing it. Doesn't matter how many people on board are like, oh, can we take it to the west so I can see the opera house? No, no, we can't, buddy. Sorry. This is how we're doing yeah, it. Yeah, this is how we're doing it, Just right? Just buckle up. You can have your opinion. Yeah. You're allowed yes. to express it. Yes. But they're not going to let you fly the plane. And not this, your job. This idea that elites, you know, and educated people shouldn't be running the government so always amuses me. We should have normal people. Why the fuck? Why shouldn't we have the smartest people? Why shouldn't we have... The most qualified people, experienced people. What's the big fears about having inexperienced people in government? Why is that cool? Yeah, when you go to the doctor, you don't go, 13 years. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I want a real person in here to tell me. Yeah, I want a real person come in. Yeah. (laughs) I don't understand that logic. Well, I mean, because I think we have been told this. We have been told by capitalism Mm. constantly that your opinion is important. Please leave – even newspapers, leave a comment. Yeah, please give us your comment. You know? Yeah. Nah, maybe don't. I don't want to comment. Nah, no, no, no. I don't want to have a conversation about this. I get like that with my work, definitely. I just think I, I don't want comments about my podcast or my radio show or my book. I don't want to hear what you thought about it or what you think I could have done better. I don't know if that makes me a bad person or precious or whatever it is, but I just don't feel like that needs to be part of it. I'm a creative person. I've created something. I've put it out there. End. Yeah. I mean, like I try to have the attitude. It's a football. I got this from... Bevo? Uh, no, I no. don't know if it is a Bevo, okay. but it's definitely a football one as well. Okay. I get a lot of mine from football. Good. I think it might be a Chris Judd one, one oh, actually. Oh, Juddy. All right. A Juddy. Um, but it, which is that uh, feedback is a gift. Uh-huh. And, you know, and I, I always try to think about that in regard to any feedback. I'm like, feedback is a gift. You know, they're telling you something, mm-hmm. uh, but, you, but you don't have to like the gift. You know, no. you don't have to accept the gift. You don't have to think they're right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I try to take it on board and then try to just go... What's my, my was my, my immediate reaction was like fuck you yeah. blah 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 yeah. it's my podcast I'll do it how I like yeah but I can go all right okay that's a, that's a decent enough piece of feedback for example my old podcast Tofop we had a, in the intro someone had cut together an intro for us and it had a reference to because we'd done one episode where we talked about prison sex <laughs> and I like had gone. I was parodying that in the thing, but out of context, like the words prison rape were in the quote. Well, yeah. And to anyone who had heard the podcast, you could clear, it was clear that it was like a comment on the thing that, yes. you know, uh, basically we hadn't done a podcast for a while and I said, well, there hasn't been any updates in the world of Batman time travel or prison rape. It was meant to be, you know, but that quote out of context, this guy messaged me one day and he was like, hey, I don't reckon you should have that in your thing anymore because he goes like, I know that you don't think that, like five, six years ago when we first did the podcast, riffing on the idea of like, you know, what it's like for a man to go to prison yes. was an area where you're like, oh, no, this is kind of – and now now, totally. now, now my mind space is like, oh, no, that's like men getting raped by other men in prison yes. isn't funny. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. Yes. And it's a, but like, that used to be everyone's joke. Right. So that's a good yeah. example of yeah. like, you know, going, well, I wasn't fucking woke on that five years ago. No. And this guy made the point. He said – because I'd left it in – my thing was – because we'd spoken on the podcast literally about that. We'd had that conversation where I was like, oh, you know, we used to talk about this, but now, you know, so I was like, we left it in as a, I guess a kind of like, this was us and now we're not this. But he said, you know, when I try to get someone new to listen to the podcast and they hear that up the top, they don't get that. And I was like, you know what? It's a really good piece of feedback. It is, yeah. And I just changed it. So sometimes feedback can actually be great. Yeah, it can But you've just got to kind of go, 
well, you've given me some feedback. It's a gift. And now I can either return the gift. Yeah. I can re-gift the gift. I can and I think take in this the gift on board. current world, there's so much negativity around it that I kind of have yeah. my um, hackles up at the very beginning of it. The oh. idea of comments on my work is like, I don't want to know about Sometimes that. Sometimes someone jokes with me online about yes. something and they get an overreaction from me. Same. And, and again, they go, no, I It's wasn't. like the road rage guy. Yeah. This is not about you. Yes. You are, you have been blocked because someone else pissed me off today, mate. Yeah. Sorry. Or they're actually having a crack at someone else. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I've just really turned on you for that. Yeah. But it's like at the end of my podcast at the moment, which is Australian true crime. Yeah. And at the end, I say, we'll be back in a week's time. Until then, take care of yourself and don't kill anybody. And, and that's not actually meant to be a joke. That's actually meant to be quite a serious piece of advice because, like, we're talking a lot. <laughs> now you're making it sound like I mean it's a joke, but because... I mean, it's funny, though. Well, I'm glad it's funny, but right. also it's like we're talking to cops and stuff. We're talking about right. how normal people can kill yeah. someone. Don't kill someone. None of us means to kill someone. None no. of us thinks I'm going to be a murderer. Wow, some people probably do. I suppose some, like, yeah. the minority do, but other people just get really angry one yeah. night at home. And so I'm just going, seriously... Don't kill anyone. Like next seven days, just I mean, make me a, that promise. It's a good bit of advice, but I feel right. like I feel like you're saying it to inside your bubble because I'm not <laughs> sure unless unless there's a whole bunch of killers listening to the podcast for tips, which actually is probably isn't a bad idea, right? Maybe because you're going to hear all these people how they got caught or <laughs> what the cops do. In fact, it probably would be a really good podcast for murderers. So if you are planning a murder, be very tune in, handy. But yeah. please stay until the end tagline. Yeah, that's really important. <laughs> it's so important you stay till the end. Yeah, it's your yeah. version of uh, but gamble responsible. <laughs> Maybe you're right. I'm in my bubble. Just if you are going to murder, murder anyone, guys, if you are going to murder, murder responsibly, yeah. guys. Yeah, I might have turned someone off murdering someone. You never know. I'll, yeah. I'll get an email about that one or day. Given Facebook. several people more clues. <laughs> the cops are like, ever since your podcast been out, we have not been able to arrest one murderer. <laughs> I live for that Facebook message where someone goes, you know, I never normally contact celebrities, but I just right. wanted to let you know that I was going to kill someone right. until I heard your podcast. Until I heard your podcast. Yeah, and and now I'm going to kill you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Have you heard um, my favourite murder? That yeah, podcast of course. That so hilarious. Yeah. And the way those girls... I know Karen a little you bit. Do? She's the fucking best. Oh my God, I love them. And yeah. the way they talk about... And they're laughing like I am now, nervously like, am I actually bringing on a murder to myself by talking about it so much? Am I doing the secret to myself where I'm putting it into the universe? I mean, if you were going (laughs) to, like, I mean, if you're looking for a new angle on murdering someone, murdering someone who hosts a murder podcast, (laughs) I mean, I reckon you go after the, like, I mean, I reckon you go after the woman from Serial first. Yes. she had the biggest podcast. Good, So if you were going to murder someone. And then it's my favourite murder and I'm way down the list. Yeah, there's actually a lot of true crimeies. Yes, there are. So you don't want to get to be the number one in true crime. What you basically no. do, you've got to look at the true crime category <laughs> and make sure you're not top five. It's what I do at the beach. Yeah. Always make sure there's a small child further out than me <laughs> in case a shark comes. That's yeah. what I need to do. Yeah, you need at least one true crime podcast in front of yours at all times. Yes. Oh, I love those girls. I'm so impressed you know yeah. that lady. Well, yeah, no, I, can't, I know Karen. I've, oh. She's um, one of the most generous yeah, comedians you'll meet over there. She's oh, fabulous. I didn't sweetheart. even know she was a comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should find – she does some actually some really fucking cool um, – Musical comedy and really quirky. Oh. I, I think you'd really dig her stuff. You should. I don't watch like, a lot of comedy anymore for because I just end up sort you'd of really jealous like and and weirded out. But I will. Yes, I will. Yeah, she's a real cracker. Uh, well, we should uh, finish up as well because we've got to that point. But there's we a question have. I always like to ask people. Oh, okay. And I'd like to know if uh, your Buddhism, um, you know, your belief has affected that at all. What do you think happens when we die? 
Oh, absolutely. Buddhism has affected that. Um, I believe that we are, are reborn within a period of probably about, I don't know, six or seven weeks. So now Earth time. We have six realms of existence. So, okay. So we're, when we are... Re- so, mm. so if we're reborn... Yes. Uh, is that into a human or is there like... A, do you cross over into other things? You can cross over into a number of things. You've got your six realms that are... Um, my favourite one is Hungry Ghosts, which I'll get to in a minute. Okay. But there's sort of three upper and three lower. This is not the question to ask me at the end because it's quite no, no. intense. But well, um, we, don't, we don't have to... I mean, okay. we can get towards the end. Okay, cool. So there's three upper, three lower. The upper realms are human... Demon realm is actually an upper realm. I'll get okay. to that in a minute. And heaven. And then the lower realms are animal, hell and hungry ghost. So the only reason animal is in the lower realm is because animals don't have a lot of autonomy. They right. rely upon, you know, other animals not to kill them or us not to kill them and eat them and all those things. So it's just a difficult realm to be born into. It's not that we think less of them. Um, hell realm is hell. And Hungry Ghost is like, okay, this is a great visual that goes with it. Imagine if you had an enormous belly and a tiny throat and a tiny mouth so you could never really get enough in there to make it feel satiated in any way. And <laughs> your face. I mean, this is my favourite one. It feels like... They said it feels like one of those ones where like a, a comedian's written a comedy festival show, yes, and it's called like uh, six things I thought about my dad, and then there's they found out they only had five, and they're like, and also hungry ghosts. Hungry He's ghost. also a hungry ghost. Uh, give me an emotion, and <laughs> he's a hungry it's like ghost. It's an improv game in Cleveland. Okay, so anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah so, but you're gonna love this. You're gonna because like, my right. contention is my argument is that hungry ghost realm exists here on our earthly plane and I am in it right? because it's about if you can't ever feel satisfied. So I feel like, oh, God, that is so me. Every time I have a big dream and I think it's everything and I work towards it and I achieve it, by the time I get there, I'm on to another dream already. I don't even really care about that so much anymore. It's like, oh, great, whatever. So I'm on to this other dream. uh, I agree with that and I think a lot of people – probably who do what we do probably have that yeah. because because goals are not as important as the journey yes. you know like but unfortunately sometimes we don't concentrate on the journey because we're working towards the goal which is so it's so unsatisfying because when you get to the goal it's not worth it enough that it was worth the sacrifice of the journey so true so but i think this is also again and i don't want this to become i did fucking uh, mia friedman's podcast which is a conversation for another day but okay. um <laughs> uh, one of the things she said to me at one stage was she was like, stop fucking bringing up capitalism. But I think it really... Um, well, because she loves capitalism. She's a capitalist animal. But I think that it, it, it plays into this <laughs> idea because this is also what capitalism yeah. has taught us, which mm. is don't be satisfied. Yeah. Because if you're satisfied, we can't sell you anything else. Like yeah. capitalism relies on the idea that you don't have what you need yet to be happy. Yeah. That's essentially what capitalism is at its heart. <gasps> you don't so quite right. have now right now. What you need to be happy. It's so funny you say that because just this morning I was driving here thinking, whatever happened to my Apple Watch? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I wanted that watch so bad and I thought it was just going to change my life. I was obsessed with it. I spent like $800 on it. 
I wore it for a couple of weeks and now I don't know where it is. Hang on, is that, is that ghost uh, wearing an Apple Watch? <laughs> is that what's going on? That hungry ghost has got so much cool shit, but it's still really hungry. Right. And yes. and I think there is an element of that where we're not meant to be satisfied. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you're meant to look, everyone's got to look younger than they used to and everyone's yeah. got to, you've got to change your clothes every six months or you'll be out of fashion or yeah. you've got to try this version of this drink or you've just got to do this and then you'll be happy. But of course, mm. that's not in their business plan. No. They don't want you to be happy. They no. then want you to get the next thing and the yeah. other thing. And we need to make us feel more paranoid about, you in, know, men inbuilt. have to feel bad about their body hair now. Like yes. instead of us going, women shouldn't have to, yeah. we go, no, no, no. Capitalism tells us, no, we all should have to. Yeah, that's equality, women man. Enough. That's equality. We want to make everybody feel terrible it's so like that we can sell It's like inbuilt obsolescence is now in us. Right. You know, it's in, in, it's in everything that we are about in our bodies. Yeah, our bodies so are built to be obsolete. It's very hard for any of us. And mm. like, you know, particularly kids who've been raised on this idea that, yeah. you know, people judge these people, these kids. They're like, oh, all they want to do is be famous. And I was like, yeah, because from age two, we let them sit in front of things, watch things, yeah. be silently brainwashed by the most creative capitalists on the entire planet into the idea that consuming and what you have is who you are it's who you are yeah absolutely well done will yes well you know to so that where end, do you think you are then how does it work in the reincarnation way what's the kind of gist behind it so if you're like you know, at one stage, how do you do? You know which one you're going to go into next. No, is it- this is the motivation to create good karma, right? And to not create bad karma. Good karma, you bumped up. Bad karma, you bumped down. <laughs> right. And everything's temporary. Everything's impermanent. So in Buddhism, if you go to heaven, that's great, but that's temporary. And also, while you're there, you're using up so many good karma credits. Right. So you need to be. So I'm aware that this is another revolutionary thought Eddie laid on us. By the way, uh-huh. he we spent an hour talking about this, and by the end of us, end of it, he had us feeling so lucky. And still, ten years later, I feel so lucky to have been born human. I can't even tell you. So once you feel lucky to be human, like it puts everything else into a different perspective. You know. So I know that I'm so lucky in this life. I have to create good karma, good karma, good karma because I'm using up a ton of it in this life. I was born human. I was born in a lucky, beautiful country where I'm allowed to do anything I want. I, I was born with a good brain and parents who were nice to me and taught me how to walk and everything else, you know, so I'm... Didn't I'm, have to step on a landmine while you're walking no, to school or anything? did like, not. Did not have to do any of that. No, you're absolutely right. Like that idea of lucky. Yeah. Such a good perspective. Like there was an ironically titled book called The Lucky Country written by Donald Horn about Australia, but it was one of those things that has been incredibly prescient, which mm. is the idea that Australia is the lucky country. Like we literally, every time there's a list on, you know, world standards on anything, we stumble our way into the top 10 or five mm. for a country that can't find like a fucking leader in the last yeah. decade. Like, you know, I mean, we... And a country where we keep calling ourselves battlers. Right. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. I know. We have like one of the greatest like levels of life that anybody's ever had anywhere. Yeah. We've forgotten though. In the old days, we felt lucky. I, yeah. I, I really do believe that was the case. Yeah, we did. We felt lucky to be born in Australia. We celebrated how lucky we were. We felt like, yeah. you know, this is the Australian way and we were proud of the fact that we had our own ways. Not in the way that we seem to now, which is yeah. defensive of what we have. Now we feel like we deserve this. I think it also That's was it reflected like. in the way we thought of our immigrant 
population. We've never been great at accepting a new wave of no. immigrants, but at the very least, it feels like back in the day, their feeling of luck at having landed here yeah. was really contagious. Whereas now you're right. Now it's all about, you know, don't let any more in. They might steal our luck. Yeah. They might steal our good life. That I earned. Yeah, 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 yeah. I worked I hard for that luck, mate. Dumb luck and to I be born want, into, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Oh, well, Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank can you. we uh, tell people about, like, well, your book? You, you've got uh, Bud- Buddhism for Breakups. Buddhism for Breakups is out. I'm writing Buddhism for Unbelievably Busy People. Nice. Now. Both good ones. They're good ones. And good um, markets, too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's what you got to look at, right? But the same thing is, like, I'm working through it as I'm writing it. It's really about me going, I. This can't be life. This yeah. can't be. I'm too busy. Why? What am I afraid of that I keep saying yes to everything and keep filling my life with stuff? So, I mean, that's a, that's a, a, again a conversation, yes. probably a longer conversation for another time. But yeah. that I mean, I'm as good if I'm if I look at one thing in my life that I go, you know, busy isn't something that we should like that we should be so proud of. I know we fetishize it. Why am I fetishizing busyness? But I am. Yeah. Guilty of that myself. Yeah. Like, even though I recognize it, I am the person who's like, I'm always busy. I'm always doing things. And I'm always saying yes to things. Why is that? Why is that? And why, when I'm already busy, do I go, I need to do a podcast that's going to take up heaps of my time. It's called Australian True Crime. But that that's just a joy. That's just an outlet. I thought you were about to say it's called Willosophy with Will Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) This is a weird time to break it to me. I mean, I won't feel too guilty about it because this I is, can't control your decisions. This is relaxing time to me. This is relaxing to me. I never get to sit and just talk to an old friend. I never get that opportunity because I refuse to grasp for you, mate, but that's because I love you. No, nah, me too. And it's been brilliant. Thank you so much Thank for doing you. it. I knew it would be great, but it has been. Uh, if people enjoy it, please rate it, uh, you know, share it around. Please. Uh, the more you guys like it, the more likely I am to continue doing it, guys. You know how it works. Mm-hmm. And you know that's not an idle threat because I'm <laughs> yeah, yes. really... He's really busy. <laughs> I am really yeah, busy, guys. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know, yeah. but I am... So busy. Really busy. <laughs> so busy. I am currently doing a national tour. It's called yes. Critically Will. Uh, if you are hearing this today, uh, you can come and see it tonight and Luke Beveridge uh, will be in the audience. But you can come and see it for three weeks at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's my favourite show I've ever done and I think you will probably like it too if you like this sort of show. Um, it is a show about the world of Donald Trump without ever mentioning Donald Trump. I just wrote a list of all the things he was against and then I wrote routines about that instead <laughs> and it's the most proud I've been of anything that I've Aww, really ever done. Good. So uh, I think people will like it. I'm doing two shows at the Sydney Opera House in the concert hall this Saturday night and a range of uh, all over the, the country. So check out comedy.com.au. All right, um, that's it. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you.